lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. What is happening this morning, Manila? How's it going? Man, I woke up, look at my phone, uh-huh. and there's all these updates coming out of the UK. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Which is hilarious to me, which we'll get to. It's in our it's our top headline. Epically funny. Epically I mean, funny. Right. Like it's because it's not like it's not like something awful happened to Boris Johnson. Right. It's not like, you know, oh, like, this is great. Th- this is just this hilarious is that he had like 22 ministers quit. Right. Like literally in 24 hours. They were putting all of those requests <laughs> in for the, um, to the committee to try to get him removed. Right. They're talking about even changing he's like, the rules. I will not resign. Yeah. One um, day later. Well, here we are. Fast forward. 14 hours later. And the irony, the irony that he and President Biden but were, the beautiful were insistent that we're like, we will get Vladimir Putin out of the Kremlin. <laughs> and it, well, well, look, look what we have here. And by the way, the most hawkish on um, oil, meaning, you know, we, we need to put more sanctions on oil. We need to put more sanctions on energy. And even... When Zelensky was trying to have these peace overtures, what right, did Bojo like, do? No. Bojo went it up. No, we are not going to give you security guarantees that right. you will need to, in order to do this. Peace Cut is it not on out. the table. Not on the table. Like not on. What? Not Zelensky's on the table. Probably, wait, wait, what? Yep. Like, what do you mean it's not on? And now. And like two weeks later, here we are. Noble position where the prime minister, who nearly got ripped out of office just a, f- a little while ago, is now finally on his way out. But you know what? Here's what I don't understand. Right. Because here in the U.S. media, and, and from what I from what I've heard over the years, and obviously like Princess Diana is like one of these horrible yeah. prime examples of how invasive the U.K. media is. Yes. Why have they not disclosed like specifically why everyone everyone at least you know in at Downing Street wants Boris Johnson out? Like, is it because of the the party gate yeah. thing? It, it, it may just be a combination of all of it. And, it is it his policies? But, and, it, but see, that's the rub. If Boris Johnson fails, do we really believe that the next prime minister from the Tory party is going to be different in policy? Meaning, is no. he going to come and say, okay, this thing with Ukraine is having too many political consequences here in the UK? So we're, I don't foresee that happening. Uh, no, is he going to take a different tact than the United States? I mean, after all. Like and, break away from the U.S.? Exactly. I don't, think so. from, I don't think so either. From under America's boot? No, I don't so, think so. So it makes it that much weirder that the guy who's screaming, America first, I mean, Britain first, yeah. Britain first. We need to be, what do you say, an island among nations or something like that, like a powerful Britain and whatnot. Um, that that Britain was a complete <laughs> vassal state of America. Oh, totally. Meaning for him to be like, we need to get out of Europe. We need to be able to direct our own position in the world, et cetera. Right. He navigated. Brexit, yes, which won him a lot of popularity points. Yes, yes, he did. And then, like eighteen months later, he's he's pro. He's I mean, like he's, he's Biden first. points. Yeah, right, right. He's, he's just Biden Biden's. polling. It's it's so sad. It's so ridiculous because when he beat Jeremy Corbyn, he beat the stuffing out of Corbyn. Uh, yeah, I know. and he beat him with very good politics. Like people can say, oh, he's a clown and everything else. Look, when Boris Johnson is left to his own devices, his politics can be exceptional. And he took that policy of what did he say? Freedom. 
freedom. He was like, we we had the Brexit referendum. Right. I'm going to attend to the Brexit like, referendum. We're independent from we're, the EU. That's right. We are not the EU. We are the UK. Yes. And, we are our own. And Jeremy Corbyn doesn't know what he's doing. Right. He's, he's dithering a, he's over a, there. He's a globalist. Yeah, he's like, all of that stuff. It's amazing. And he was like, freedom, freedom. That was his key point. Because... The Labor Party couldn't make a determination on whether or not they were going to fulfill the issue of Brexit, meaning we had the referendum. Are you going to fulfill it? Labor couldn't say it. yes. Right. And um, Jeremy Corbyn, who is a Brexiteer, mind you, have all of these backbenchers where he is so weak, he can't necessarily bring himself to confront his backbench. So what did Boris Johnson hit? He is not going to fulfill the referendum. He went hard. I am freedom and justice. My name is Boris Johnson. Right. And none of that had to do with freedom and justice. And yet he was able to do it. He was even able to get Skinner's OC, meaning he was able to get areas that had never been Tory. Fast forward. Fast forward. On his way out. So much happened in 18. I think it's only been 18 months. It hasn't been that long. It's been about 18 months that he's been in office. And here's what I was just saying the other day, right? Like, I wish the U.S. Congress yeah. was more more similar or reflective of their U.K. Oh, counterparts. thousand percent. Because, yeah, <laughs> like, I it's love. It's like stinging comments. Oh, my God. Oh, they're, they're snarky. Yes. They're like, they're like snide to one another. And then they start laughing when they do it. It's like they yes. start crying like, it's like <laughs> the prime minister is a rat fleeing the ship. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. Like, I love it. And then you compare that to our Congress and it's it's all dry. Madam, uh, Madam Speaker, uh, I yield my time back. <laughs> Boring, boring. Oh, it's not that. I used to cover. I used to cover that for my channel. By the way, I used to run the entire back and forth between prime minister questions. Yeah, I used to love it. And it's like they would get in every pointing at each other, and it was like like these muscular stances, like oh, you're the prime minister's blah 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 blah. And passionate speeches. Yeah, Yeah, it's so good. I love the booing. Yeah, like I I gotta say, it's so honest. I just you know what? It's human reaction. Yeah. Here it's like gavel, 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 decorum, right? Decorum. Uh-uh. No. They have an umpire specifically because yes. they know they're not going to be the corn. Yeah. <laughs> it's so I love, good. I love the, whatever they call their ump over there in, in their parliament. I know he, what you mean, yeah. He wears the powder wig and yeah. stuff still. It used to be Burkow. Burkow used to be so good. Yeah, he was oh, on yeah, these he cutting retired. responses when he retired. But I love that they wear, like, the whole get-up, you know, yeah. the powdered wig and the big oversized gavel. Oh, I love and it. you're like, what I love am I it. looking at? It looks what like a I time capsule, at? right? Yes. It looks like something that was taking place, like, in the 1400s or something. But I, I really so dig the booing. <laughs> And the, and the cheering, right. because it's so real. Yeah. It's so real. And their ability to remove people from office. Yes. We don't have that ability. Prime Minister can collapse. The government can collapse. Like, we, I mean, this isn't Israel Knesset level, obviously. Yeah. Like, they, I don't think they boo and stuff in the Knesset, but. Oh, I've seen, yeah. That yeah, not, yeah. Not, there's no booing and stuff at the Knesset, but. But with as many times as the Knesset has literally folded in what? the past, it's like, like three five years. or something, yeah. Yeah, it's like four or five times. And I, I mean, seriously, in three or four years, it's less than a year fold. Less than a year fold. Yeah. Full, full start over, start from scratch. So, you know, the UK Parliament's not that wonky and crazy. No. But it's them being able to get the prime ministers out. Yeah. Theresa May. Folded. Um, uh, what's his name? The one that was before Theresa May. I can't think of his name. Um, oh, I can see his I face. Cameron. David Cameron. Folded. 
I mean, especially when he lost the Brexit vote. When David Cameron lost the Brexit vote, he gets up there. Jeremy Corbyn makes a comment, and he looks like he's going to cry. He's like, just go, man. It's it's so great. Like, his emotions were involved because he basically lost Brexit, in which case he had to take an exit. Why don't we have those theatrics here? I kind of wish we did. Well, Brits are dramatic, even though no, they try to be not, understated. Though. The Brits like, are I, normally like, keep calm and carry uh, on. Ah, that's what that's, that's that's the culture. That's what they say. That's There's their drama culture. in the way that they I'll give you another example. At the point where Boris Johnson first takes power, um, one of the Tories gets up, walks across the aisle to get across that he no longer has a governing majority in the country itself. Meaning he did that in these theatrical terms and everybody was like, whoa, because everybody got what it meant. In which case, Boris Johnson ends up losing seven votes back to back to back to back. He no longer had the power of the government. And so, but think of the dramatic part of, I'm going to stand up as soon as Boris Johnson is about to stand up and I'm going to walk across so everybody knows he no longer has power of the government itself. It's phenomenal stuff. I mean, even the screaming at each other, that's not cordial. Like, that's not right, a which stiff is, upper lip and everything is, else. It You're is like, totally antithetical of yes. the culture yes. of what we, what we think of British people. That's right. Right? Like, typically they're, oh, well-mannered yeah. and the pinky up with the tea. Alexander McCurse. Alexander McCurse is a perfect example. The way he talks about it, the way he explains it, it is very formal. It is very measured, et cetera. With me, I'm screaming in my basement. But, like, here— in the U.S., we as a culture are very loud and boisterous right. and over the top. And then our Congress is like boring and flat. Bueller. But maybe Bueller. the reason it's that way is because it needs to be that way. Meaning, Does it because, because we are so boisterous and everything else that when it comes down into this kind of political combat, maybe you don't want to be that way. Maybe you need to have those kind of formalities. Maybe balance. Maybe, whereas Brits, that formality is typically there. So when they get there, they just cut loose. I don't know. I, I don't I'm, know. Isn't I'm that strange, though? It's like the opposite. Yeah, like the flips. culture is opposite of whoever their governing body is. Yeah. It's like the governing body is is opposite and antithetical of that culture. So super weird. Yeah. It's But maybe that's what it is. It's like, because for me, in a political, just like in marriage and just like in politics, there needs to be a formality in the way that you're dealing with the opposition. Right. Maybe it's like a yin-yang balance. It, it could be. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. know. But all I know is when I woke up this morning, I... I'm I'm not like laughing in the sense of of like at his demise or I am. whatever. I am. I'm, I'm there. I'm laughing because just how you know how staunchly stubborn he was. Yes. Yes, yesterday. Yes. Just <laughs> right, yesterday. Right, right. Literally before I went to bed, the prime minister said basically said, "Hell no, I'm not leaving. I'm Hell not going no, anywhere. I will not go. I'm going to be a farmer." And then the next day. And then literally, I went to bed, and like seven hours later. Oh, he's gonna resign. He's but see, I told you those statements. Like when they make statements like that, that stuff is just there to project strength. Reality but for is different. Seven hours. It's it's. <laughs> look, I would say up to an hour before he came out, he probably okay. still said the same thing. I'm gonna be your father. Hour later. They're like, okay, I'll be fine, resigned. Fine. Yeah, I'm right. Effective immediately. Yeah. I love that stuff, man. I God, I love that stuff. The political intrigue and all of that. Like, my, oh, yeah, I, love it, like I love it. This is like totally nerding out. I know for you know where I'm from, where I'm going home to tomorrow, tonight, tonight yeah. actually, uh, back to California. And people don't generally know, you know, what's happening in Parliament or you know here in Washington yeah. on the on the Hill. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they dive right into these celebrity, the celebrity culture. I mean, that's, yeah. that's Los Angeles, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's what it is. I had no, I have no idea what's happening with Kim Kardashian and yeah. whatever his, uh, the young guy from SNL, uh, Pete Davidson. 
Pete Davidson. Yeah, I don't. Exactly. Uh, she's dating, you know, whatever, dating this young kid. I have no idea what's happening with him. Don't know, don't care. Like, it's insignificant. Oh, she got herself a young man. Young. Good He's like her. under good, 30. Good for her. A woman in her 40s. I'm always appreciative oh. of women who can who do that. Right. So Always. I like older women in general. And so this, I like this idea of the woman. She's like, you know what? Screw convention. I'm going to get me a young guy. Right, I, need, I need a guy who puts it down. He's a young cat. Yeah, young guy. That's so what I, I, I was reading. I, it just popped up yesterday. And I was like, oh, because normally I'm reading yeah. this stuff, right? Because to me, I nerd out on this stuff, on, yeah. on Boris Johnson. Same like, here. oh, when he was before, I think he, he has now married his his baby mama. He has two kids oh, now. Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because, this was the woman he was dating at one point, right? Yes. But he, Boris Johnson, to me, like his his dating adventures were, ugh. but um, <laughs> yeah, he went into, he he was sworn into the prime minister's office as a single man. Right, right. And that was just 18 months ago. Yeah. However, he had a baby mama. She oh, was I pregnant. Know that she was He's still prego. with that woman. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still with that woman, but- all this dirt about him having affairs with people, yeah. affairs. But he was a single man, right. you know. So, so it's you not really an affair. He's just right. messing around. It's just, yeah, yeah he's just, I'm he's fine. doing his thing as right. a single man. Um, all these women were coming out, you know, talking tawdry stuff about, you know, hooking up in his office and all this. Yeah. Good for him. Okay, fine, Good whatever. for him. Like, he's, he's single. He You're a prime single minister. Man. You whatever. can, you know, it's like, I'm going to take her to number 10. That's right. the ultimate, you know, so, date move. Yeah, you know, so. Now, I guess he's, he's, it was like Irish twins, one baby after the next with yeah. this woman. Um, I think he might be married. So s- stuff like that, I'm more aware of. Yeah. No idea what's happening in Hollywood. Yeah, so same. it's same. like the dichotomy of, of me being from Los Angeles, but like now living in DC. And I was weird about that when you're I trying to talk to somebody. It. Yes. It, oblivious. I have no idea. Oblivious. It's like you bring up something like, you know, it's like we're having a conversation about Erdogan. They're like, have the conversation about, right. Can. Or like Ethiopian politics, and they're like, uh, okay. Or even politics here, and their eyes just glaze over. Oh, yeah. I mean, glaze I over. used to love, I used to love um, when Jay Leno still had the show, yeah. and he would do jaywalking. Yes, yes, And he would yes. ask people, like, stupid questions that you should know, like, right. very elementary questions. Who's the first president of the United States? Abraham Lincoln. And- no, not even that. John F. Kennedy? <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Or like, it's like, who freed the slaves? Uh, George Washington. It's, it, it's just like, it, it, those were, used, they used to be so good. Where is Paris, France? And people are like, um, what country is Paris, France in? Britain? Yeah, and people say stuff yeah. like that. And I used to get such a kick out of that because that's like the, the difference because he's walking around Los Angeles right. and he's showing you how disconnected yeah. Los Angeles is in its own bubble. Right. I didn't take it that way. I took it as all of those. I took it as if you did that in any state, it would be the same. You think so? I didn't take it as disconnected. I took it as people live their life and all of that other extraneous stuff and everything else is secondary to the individual things that they live. Meaning the people they're so engaging it's different with. Because I'm, I'm a local. Yeah. And I know that to be true. Yeah. In Los Angeles. I think if they did that here, it'd be the same. I think, think if they so? did that anywhere, it'd be the same. You think here in D.C., yeah. if there was a, a, a jaywalking yes. segment. Even in New York. I mean, Colin O'Brien used to have something similar like that, if I'm not mistaken. I think anywhere that you go, it would be that. Anywhere in the United States. I did one time. I mean, before I get to headlines, this last note about (laughs) random people's knowledge. Right. Um, (laughs) So I one day was walking here to the studio and I was. You're welcome, guys. There's no music in the background that's just kind of running on and on and on. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like, oh, shut that music off. If they're going to talk, I'm sorry. Right. Um, So I one day was walking across the the 
you know, that walking pathway in front of the White House that's yeah. closed off. It's pedestrian only. So I was walking across to get to the studio and it's tourism season, mm-hmm. right? So clearly these are tourists and it was a, a mom and a dad. Right. And they're probably 13 year old, like, you know, middle school son. Yeah. And they were talking about presidency and whatever. And and the son said something about the the age you have to be to be president. Exactly. I knew the answer, but I'm, I'm not going to say anything, right? I'm, I'm walking kind of behind them. I could hear them talking. And I was like, I wonder what the dad's going to answer. Uh-oh. And the dad's like, I believe you have to be at least 27. And, and I was like, <laughs> 35! <laughs> 35! You, you should have just told him. No! It's like, I would have just said something. I'm like, oh, actually, it's 35. I would have told him. I was not. I just was not going to I have no in. issue doing that. But I, I was I was walking. I just wanted to hear, and I was like, oh, my God, is this what people— Yes. Is this what they— That's normal. I didn't know where they were from. I didn't ask, but I could. I just was listening to their conversation because I was walking next to them. Any so. random American, I think that would be normal for them not to know that answer. And he was. He said something. It was, he was like, well, I think it's around 30, but I think it's like 27 or something. And I was like, no. True, 35. Bro. Yeah, 35. And then he said something about, you know, like nationalized American citizenship. Like he told, he was telling his son all of this wrong information. <laughs> and the mom did the whole, the whole, you know, like paternalistic, like ask your father. Yeah. And he was like, oh, he didn't want to sound like a fool. So he doubled down and told his son, you know, whatever like he believed. Yeah. And and I was like, no. He should have said something. And I think he said something about like, I don't know if he was talking about Elon Musk, maybe about becoming uh. president. And I was like, he can't become president. He can't because he's naturalized. Right. Like Otis singer can't become president. He cannot become president because right. he was born in South Africa. Right. Right. He's, an, yeah. he's a U.S. citizen, but he's he's not born here. So it can't, it right. cannot happen. But so at one point we break away and finally I was like, oh my God, this is what people think. This is what people think. Anyway. Oh, I, I think it is. I yes, think it's our, our morning chat, our morning chat here. But yes, going back to the original chat. Radically out of control <laughs> this morning. Yes. So, but it was, you know, it's it's a wild time it's over in the UK. big, big news, yes, man. It, that That is the breaking yeah. news, folks. Let's head over to official headlines. Uh, as you just heard. Prime Minister Boris Johnson agreeing to resign as the conservative leader today with a public statement expected in the coming hours. So it could happen during this show because of the time difference. I believe there's a five-hour time difference. John Six. Johnson. Do they not change times like we do? Oh, um, forget six? that I said that. I don't know. I think it's five, maybe six hours. Yeah. Uh, Johnson will continue as prime minister until this fall, the report is adding. Accordingly, conservative leadership uh, a race will likely take place this summer to replace him uh, from the Tory party. Their conference is in October. The prime minister is said to have already spoken with the 1922 committee chairman, Sir Graham Brady, acknowledging that he would quit. So he confirmed that to uh, Downing Street sources uh, being cited by the media. Then some domestic news. Another person stepping down from the White House. No, it's not Joe Biden. It's his White House communications director, Kate Bedingfield. She will step down from her position in the coming weeks. That's according to Chief of Staff Ron Klain. He says, quote, without Kate Bedingfield's talent and tenacity, Donald Trump might still be in the White House. The rescue plan and the infrastructure law might still be unrealized goals. And Kentaji Brown Jackson might 
not be sitting on the Supreme Court. She has played a huge role in everything the president has achieved from his second term as vice president through the campaign and since coming to the White House, he said to CNN. Yeah, I don't know how the comms director has any role in policy, but okay. That's really not the job of a comms director. So if she had anything to do with that, Fair no enough. wonder things are effed right. up. <laughs> right, right. If she had that many responsibilities. Right, where I'm like, right. you're a comms director. <laughs> right, right. You're supposed to just control, like, the media and stuff and, like, how the president presents himself. Oh, that's a which, great point. Which, if I he's falling that. down the stairs, not doing a good job. Yeah. Falling off bikes. Uh, Klain also said that despite leaving her current position, Bettingfield will remain a, quote, critical player in moving the Biden agenda forward from the outside. I don't know what that means, but okay. (laughs) Members of the U.S. Democratic Party are growing frustrated with the way President Biden is responding to the challenges in this moment, including the record inflation and the recent Supreme Court ruling on abortion rights. CNN is reporting, citing sources in the know at the White House. Dozens of leading Democratic politicians believe Biden's administration lacks effective management to quickly respond to new demands and challenges it faces every day. None of Biden's administration's recent actions, they say, whether it was his announcement of his historic release of oil from the nation's strategic petroleum reserve or invocation of the Defense Production Act to address the baby formula shortage, have solved the problems. You don't say. And then over in Texas, Kinney County in Texas has declared a local state of disaster, officially classifying the flood of migrants streaming across the Mexican border as, quote, an invasion and requesting assistance from state and federal authorities. Kinney County Judge Tully Shahan legally declared the invasion on Tuesday and five nearby counties have already enacted similar decrees or at least plan to do so. Shahan's declaration noted that 3.2 million illegal aliens had been caught sneaking into the U.S. since January of 2021, plus some 800,000 who avoided capture. He also claimed more than 50, quote, known terrorists had entered the U.S. via the Mexican border since the start of 2022 and cited quote, the unprecedented amount of human trafficking and drug smuggling as factors constituting an invasion. And some international news now. Beijing has been branded the biggest long-term threat to economic security by the head of the FBI and the leader of Britain's domestic intelligence agency. FBI chief Christopher Wray, in a rare joint appearance with Ken McCollum, the head of MI5, warned business leaders that the Chinese government was purportedly, quote, set on stealing your technology, whatever it is that makes your industry tick and using it to undercut your business and dominate your market. In a speech at MI5's London headquarters, Mr. Ray and McCollum reaffirmed previously voiced concerns about economic espionage and, high- and hacking operations ostensibly being carried out covertly by Beijing. Quote, We consistently see that it's the Chinese government that poses the biggest long-term threat to our economic and national security. And by our, I mean both of our nations, along with our allies in Europe and elsewhere. That coming from Christopher Wray. 
And then four more NATO members have joined Canada in officially ratifying the accession of Finland and Sweden to the U.S.-led military alliance. On Wednesday, the leaders of Iceland, Denmark, Norway, and Estonia all submitted their approvals for the two Nordic countries to join the bloc just one day after the accession protocols were signed, according to Finland's state-owned YLE News. On Tuesday, the prime ministers of Norway, Denmark, and Iceland stated that they were, quote, ready to submit their ratification instruments to the government of the United States of America, noting that it was a signal of unanimous Nordic support for the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO and a testimony to the deep mutual bonds and close relations between the Nordic countries. Then some economics news here. Crude fell to a 12-week low of $95 per barrel on Wednesday as the combination of a fear of recession, resurgent dollar, and aggressive rate hikes by the Fed tested the metal of this year's oil rally. New York's traded West Texas Intermediate WTI settled down 97 cents or almost 1% at $98.53. The intraday low was $95.17, a bottom not seen since the week ended of April 8th. In just two sessions, the U.S. crude benchmark has lost almost $15 or 14%. Citigroup says WTI could collapse to $65 a barrel by the end of this year and slump to $45 by the end of 2023 if a demand-crippling recession hits. Then Apple has announced a new feature coming this fall, not for you regular folk, intended for high-profile users, including politicians, journalists, activists, dissidents from state-sponsored cyber attacks. The new feature, called Lockdown Mode, will limit several features of the iPhone, but in doing so will close multiple vulnerabilities to targeted spyware attacks like those used by the Israeli company, the NSO Group. They have, they released Pegasus, which was used on Jamal Khashoggi. When turned on, that mode will disable wired connections, JavaScript in the Safari browser, prevent new configuration profiles, disable Apple service requests, including FaceTime requests, unless the user has previously called the initiator or scheduled the call. The block and they'll block most iMessage attachments except for simple images, including link previews. Now, that last feature's removal is intended to block a method used by NSO's Pegasus software that uses GIFs to exploit iMessage without requiring the user to even click or look at that message. And that, we'll leave that right there. That's going to do it for your headlines. This Thursday, July the 7th, you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around to Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you guys 
Yeah, if you share that like audio video, if you want to send us a conversation or join in a conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. So I want to go to our guests, one of our favorite guests, especially on the issue of foreign policy. We have Elijah McNier. He's a veteran war correspondent, and you can find his reporting on ElijahJM.wordpress.com. He's reported from war zones such as Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Elijah, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? Hello, Jamal. I'm fine. Thank you for having me again. No, thank you for joining us. And so I guess we have to start here because this is the biggest news of the day. Prime Minister Boris Johnson will be no more. And he would basically address the nation later today from 10 Downing Street, or that's what 10 Downing Street said. I mean, earlier, 54 officials, 54 officials, including four ministers, bailed from his government. And of course, this put all sorts of pressure on the, on the Boris Johnson government. And this has a lot of issues that basically came over the, over the course of Boris Johnson's term. But the last one had to do with, let's just say, a chief whip, Chris Pincher, who, let's say, pinched too many guys that didn't want to be pinched in an inappropriate way. Basically, he groped a bunch of guys at a party. Um, so, and Boris Johnson knew that there were issues with him, that he was somewhat of a sketchy individual, and he knew in advance, despite the fact that they gave the guy the job. So let's start there, because that seems to be the big story of the day. It is earth-shattering, I would imagine, in regards to the news. What's your take on it, though? Just going, just as a very, you know, open question. What's your take on Boris Johnson failing miserably and resigning later today? <laughs> well, Everything has started when the Conservative Party questioned his leadership and his performance in the government. And when a big part of his, of his uh, party members asked him to stand against in the parliament and they uh, withheld the vote on him, although it was a minor vote, but that was the beginning of his decline. And I think on your show we have predicted that because he got only 59% in a secret vote that, were, that took place last month. So when uh, the Conservative Party had 389 uh, out of 650, and then you have all this number of his government um, uh, resigning and uh, all the uh, decision makers and all the key people around him saying no more to... Uh, Boris Johnson, it, it was a time for him to leave because uh, uh, of so many mistakes that he made since the COVID and then continue with lying to uh, the population, lying about his parties, taking the uh, state into a place where inflation is increasing to a dramatic level, a warning that um, the UK is going to suffer uh, of a tsunami coming next winter. And we all know that because of his leading um, campaign against Russia, even more fanatically than the U.S., all that is leading him to leave because uh, this is where he, he meant to be. He meant to be out of the government. He meant to be out of the leadership. And he's going to resign as a, a leadership of the party and as a prime minister. And that was obvious because uh, Theresa May before him uh, suffered exactly the same. And while we are talking, I am sure that Boris Johnson will be announcing that there should be a new pr a prime minister and a new leader of his party. 
Now, Elijah, what is this going to do in terms of the war in Ukraine? I mean, a new Tory leader will probably step up in the next, I don't know, when is October? Four months, four, three months, four months from now? Uh, is there, when the new Tory leader steps in, do you foresee any changes in how the UK's approach to Ukraine? I mean, is it going to go any differently? Is he going to, you know, tow the the UK line, which is basically the United States line uh, as a vassal state to the United States? I mean, is, in, is this, is this going to change any of the outcomes in terms of Ukraine? Well, I'm going to be honest with you here because I made a mistake in my analysis um, for some time. Now, here there are two points. First of all, the UK is outside the European Union, so it's not part of the 27 nations that form the EU. Secondly, the UK has decided uh, to follow the path of the US and the and to support the US policy. And there's a very um, typical word you very much used in the UK among decision makers is we punch above our weight. So they think with the leadership they're trying to show to the world that the British Empire, although it is gone, but it's still existing in matter of influence on the ground, which is not true because the UK is out of the EU, is trying to earn the support and the um, the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, all the uh, US what the US can offer to the UK, and it has decided just to put all its eggs in the US uh, basket. However, what's happening here, and this is where my revision is, I don't think the Europeans are. Uh, dragged to the policy that they have adopted, to the self-suicidal policy they have adopted in Ukraine. I think the European Union uh, has made a decision to stand with the U.S. and to be colonized by the U.S. willingly. They are not forced. They, sometimes France and the uh, Germans try to resist a little bit, but we've seen in the, at the G7 how they have behaved. We've seen how Germany is really pushing forward, although it's the most suffering country in Europe and it's predicting that all this industry is going to crumble in a few months because of the lack of uh, Russian gas. Now, fearing Elisha, that Russia there's break yes. breaking news just now. Boris Johnson has just officially handed in his resignation. It has just happened, coming down, breaking yeah. right now, 10 Downing Street confirming. We saw. <laughs> we saw. We saw. We didn't conquer. Right, right, right. We're leaving. The, wow. That's it, shocking, right? I mean, it yeah. just it just happened. I mean, how long has his prime ministership been? About 18 months or so. He he navigated through Brexit. He came in with very high marks. The polls were very strong behind him. And here we are, fall from grace, 18 months in. Yeah, and he was saying that I'm staying until January 2025. So it didn't last for the end of this year, so not even two years, and he's uh, standing down because he's no longer wanted. His own party is giving up on him, and the rest of the government, I'm sure there were two or three who wanted to resign today. So he just uh, moved ahead by saying, I move away 
And that was particularly when Manila and I, if you remember, we talked about it and we said this is the beginning of the fall of Boris Johnson because of his performance. Now, there is wait for other states in Europe to crumble, wait for more people. We've seen a few days ago in Italy, in France, at, by the end of the summer, people are just biting today on their wound because of the summer, because of the holidays that are coming up in July and August. Wait until the end of the holidays, wait until the beginning of the autumn, and then you will see people in the street of Europe because of the consequences of the EU decision willingly, and I repeat, willingly to follow and put all its eggs in the US basket and then to shoot itself in the foot and suicide. It is a self-suicide decision that they have taken against Russia that lost 24 million in the Second World War, along with uh, side with the Europeans, when the Americans lost 480,000 only. So Russia is a natural partner of Europe, and Europe had decided to go the other way around and turn its face on Russia. And that is the European decision that is going to be extremely costly. And now the head of Boris Johnson is the first to fall. You know, I'm curious, does any of this have anything to do with the economic damage that Europe is basically taking or, let's say, Britain is basically taking? It has I mean, to, right? I, has I, would, to. I would think it has to. I mean, think of the damage that Britain... Some of the reports that came out was talking about thousands of dollars, like many, all of these people, thousands of people not able to be able to pay for heat. And that's a direct result of what Boris Johnson was doing. He was the most hawkish out of all of these other European leaders. And so it's, it's like, is... Is it a situation where because of the damage that Britain is taking that they were that much more likely to go that route? I mean, my, my only issue with that question is that would they be doing anything different regardless of who ever takes over after Boris Johnson? And who is more likely to take over after Boris Johnson anyway on top of that? Well, we have to see the uh, what the party uh, is going to decide and who's going to take over. They need to meet and they need to discuss. This is why it's going to take... Uh, a little while to find the person who's going to uh, accept to uh, lead the country from the, the disastrous level that was left behind by Boris Johnson. And it's not going to be easy because, of course, the his decision with COVID and what to do with the economy will uh, has affected the, the UK, but again, confiscated all the wealth of the Russian that used to be uh, a significant, I mean, they had significant leverage on the economy, buying houses in London, uh, investing a lot of money in the UK, and all that just just to freeze the Russian asset. They stopped buying gold when the UK imports 91% of all the Russian gold. And all these decisions to follow the US, uh, this is a price, and Boris Johnson is paying the price, thinking that he's going to uh, get away with it. Well, he's not, and we've seen today, uh, as now, that he's resigning. Good on him. Who do you think, I mean, obviously, I think we we all know that Boris Johnson was following in whatever directives he was getting from the United States. Um, but I know I know the, the UK has parted ways, has divorced from the EU. It's no longer a member. However, it's still a key player in the region. Emmanuel Macron is effectively, you know, the, the, the leader of all the European area. I mean, is that the way 
Europe wants to send itself in the direction of Emmanuel Macron? I mean, who who else is left? Who who else is going to step up to the plate uh, at the British House of Commons? Well, on the first question, who can replace him? Jeremy Hunt is one of the uh, people who are uh, potentially uh, a candidate to replace uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, the Foreign um, uh, Secretary Liz Truss is also popular among the Conservative Party members. Now, uh, the um, the uh, the David, who was used to be the Home Secretary um, in the previous uh, government, also is is in a good position. The uh, Defence Secretary, also Ben Wallace, is also. Uh, one of the candidates. So the Conservative Party will continue leading because it had the majority. Now, you mentioned Emmanuel Macron. Macron is still struggling to form a government. He's still struggling to uh, have uh, the support at the National Assembly. And his decisions are a bit on both sides, particularly when he leaked the conversation he had with President Vladimir Putin. From now on, uh, President Putin will not talk to him in a way, in a confidentiality way, because he knows that his colleague, another president, the president of France, is going to leak and publish the, the conversation just to get some support in the National Assembly and to sell it to President uh, Joe Biden before the G7 meeting. Now, this is not what presidents do to one another. And I don't think this has served Macron because his problem is not to please Joe Biden, but to please the street. And the street in France is extremely furious about Macron's policy and doesn't want him. And that was very obvious. It's not me who is inventing, reinventing the wheel here. The way he was elected as a president, the way he uh, gathered uh, the vote at the National Assembly. It's very clear that he was the choice between a bad person and a worse person. Elijah, it just sounds like all over Europe, and I don't mean the EU as a bloc, I just mean Europe in general, it seems like there's weak leadership everywhere. You have Olaf Scholz, who doesn't have half the the strength of Angela Merkel to stand up to the U.S. No one you, it. You have Nowhere near you it. have Emmanuel Macron who has lost the majority in the National Assembly. He can't, like you said, he's struggling. He's struggling to put together a government, cobble it together. Now you have Boris Johnson who is being forced out by his own party, effectively a self coup. Um, where who is leading? I mean, in Europe, who are the who are the leaders? Who is going to step up now in this time of? crisis where they are both economically in a crisis, um, they're in a, the, looking at a food crisis across Europe, and obviously a hot war in Ukraine. Well, um, mark my word, the next person who's going to fall is the Italian prime minister, because people in Italy are starting to uh, take up the street and they are fed up. So who's going to lead Europe? Well, the main countries who are leading Europe uh, today and in the last few decades is France, Germany, and Italy. Now, these three countries have defined their policy, and they are the ones who are going to suffer the most. I'm not counting the UK due to the Brexit. 
But if I want to count the UK on the European continent, I have to count also Russia, that is also in Europe. So um, for these three countries, that is France, the, uh, Germany and Italy, we've seen the consequences in Germany when officials are coming out and saying uh, we are extremely afraid that Russia that is saying that it has uh, uh, is carrying out maintenance on its turbines is going to stop and not provide us with further gas. And they expect Russia to look after their needs when they are imposing six packets of sanctions, sending weapons to Ukraine, financing Ukraine, and killing more Ukrainian and Russian soldiers. So this kind of thinking is beyond any logic. And the population here in Europe is thinking about it, not for the love of Russia, but for the, the sake of their own safety. The Taking a position against Russia is against the interest of the European population, is against the interest of the European government. So when these people look at their leaders taking these decisions, the minimum they can say they are incompetent and need to be removed. Now, when they will be removed, other leaders will come and will learn the lesson and try to avoid what their predecessor uh, decisions uh, have taken. However, at the course of uh, events today, it's too late for Europe to pull back. It is too late for Europe to say we're not sending money to Ukraine that is claiming uh, the need of five billion every month, and that the U.S. is saying to European, "Come on, you pay for Ukraine and you support Ukraine, and I look after the military side." And then when on the military side, the U.S is sending weapons on a lease basis. So they're renting right. these weapons to Ukraine, as they have done in the Second World War when Europe finished paying for the, all the expenses of the UK, US in 2016 only. So who's paying all these uh, weapons? You Europeans are offering this as a gift to Ukraine for Ukraine to continue fighting to and to meet the US hegemony and policy, not the European policy. However... European leaders have decided, and that is costly, that has a price, and they have decided to join the U.S. and to take a position against Russia. Well, yeah. Can they sustain that? We don't know what Russia is going to do. If Russia closed the tap of gas on Europe, Europe will crumble. Yes. I mean, multiple German industries are talking about collapsing. I mean, and this is based on German government talking about it themselves. Um, the, you know, the G20 is coming up. And Moscow apparently is going to be at the G20 summit. This should be very interesting. You're going to have all of these Western nations, but also China, Indonesia, India, South Africa, et cetera. What is, from your standpoint, what do you think is going to take place there or is anything going to take place there? Meaning, is there any news that you think is going to come out of that over the next two days? Well, the 17G20 head of state and government summit uh, is expected in November in Bali. So I think... Uh, first, we don't know if President Putin is going to be there. Um, secondly, if he is there, how the head of states will behave with him. And we're talking about the 16% of the world population, which are one third of the country, because two thirds of the world is standing with President Putin. We have uh, Latin America, Asia, uh, the Middle East and Africa. They all... Uh, don't, uh, refuse to send against President Putin. 
because all these are with Russia and they're not in harmony with the U.S. policy at the exception of, of course, the West. And here we include also Japan uh, and uh, Singapore and, yes, unforgettably, Taiwan. So uh, but the, uh, the, the uh, outcome of the summit is not going to be great because there is no harmony in between leaders, because there is the weight of the U.S., that is waiving the sanctions against all the countries because they are thinking and they vocal it. It's by saying we're not thinking about putting imposing sanctions on Russia and Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, etc., but also on the countries who stand with Russia. So they send few menaces saying this. Uh, the other countries are not seemingly intimidated because we've seen that Saudi Arabia is not really responding to the U.S. demand, particularly to Joe Biden. And uh, we've seen other oil-rich countries are following suit. Therefore, it's not expected to come out, there's not expected a big result out of the uh, G20 summit. I don't think so. Okay. And one more thing. It, Iran, let's talk about that for a moment, the JCPOA. So reports come out that the U.S. has basically started to target Iranian oil. And this is after talks apparently are not necessarily going all that well. And I suppose part of the talks, I mean, look, it was the U.S. that basically pulled out of it, shot it in the face, the JCPOA in the face. But on top of that, Iran and some of the ministers have basically made the point of saying that they are exporting as much oil as they were before the sanctions were put into place. So what is going on with this? You even had tankers apparently being seized. Um, at the behest of the United States. What is going on here? I mean, it seems like at one point that there were negotiations that the United States needed the oil, in which case they were trying to expedite these the JCPOA negotiations. What about now? I think about the JCPOA, we need to talk in full episode. However, I'm going to try to resume as possible here. First of all, the world needs to understand that in 2015, when Barack Obama signed the JCPOA, he did not abide by it, and he instructed all the banks not to accept to deal with Iran. So that was the first breach. Iran uh, was in full compliance with the JCPOA until 2018, struggling with President Obama and after him, President Donald Trump, who uh, took the U.S. away from the JCPOA and rejected the United Nations resolution and imposed unilateral illegal sanctions on Iran. Now, the mockery is not only Donald Trump said, I'm waiting by the phone for the Iranians to call me, and he left before the phone rang uh, during his presence, but Joe Biden maintained exactly the same uh, sanctions on Iran and imposed other. So he added more sanctions and under which title? And here is the mockery. Under the title of Iran lack of compliance with the JCPOA. This is a country, the U.S., that uh, left the JCPOA in 2018 until today did not return to the JCPOA and is accusing Iran of lacking of compliance where the JCPOA um, Iran was respecting JCPOA for the full year between 2018 and 2019. And according to the JCPOA Article 35, Iran has the right 
to pull away from the JCPOA gradually. And this is what Iran is doing, staying still with the JCPOA according to the deal. So the people and the country who is not respecting the JCPOA is imposing more section on Iran, accusing Iran for not abiding by it. And the worst of all that are the European countries who signed the JCPOA, pretend that it is only between Iran and the US, while in 2018, all the European countries pulled out of Iran. And until today, they did not abide by their signature. They did not fulfill the commitment. And today they are playing the role of mediator because Iran doesn't want to talk to the US, doesn't even accept the US envoy to be in the same hotel and refuse to have the US flag in the same room and the European pretend to be the mediator when they are still out of the JCPOA by saying we are still in. So what Iran is asking, asking from the US to lift all the sanctions as a goodwill sign, Secondly, to remove all the sanctions imposed by Donald Trump and during Donald Trump era. So that's the tricky bit. Now, Donald Trump imposed sanctions on the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corp, the IRGC, and the IRGC are not only a military body, but they also have thousands of civilian institutions involved in trade and commerce, and they represent Iran inside and outside the country. So that would be a perfect alibi for Joe Biden to reimpose sanctions on Iran when he will uh, sign the JCPOA, if he signed the JCPOA, saying that, well, I'm attacking only the IRGC and I'm not removing the IRGC from the list of terrorism. Therefore, any country, any institution, any bank dealing with any Iranian branch linked to the IRGC will be under sanctions. So back to square one, and Biden will uh, enjoy imposing more sanctions on Iran. Now, Iran saying, I don't want the nuclear bomb. They've reached 60%. They have the full knowledge to go to 90% because the real issue is to go from zero to 20% enriched uranium, while going from 20 to 90 is the easiest step, and Iran has reached a 60% advanced centrifuge from IR1, IR2, uh, allowed in, a, in the JCPOA to IR9 that uh, helps it to produce more enriched uranium with a more purity and all that. And still Iran saying, I don't want to make a bomb, but if you force me, if you push me, I'm going to increase my knowledge to the point where I will seize the uh, Western control over Iran. And then we have the head of the uh, Atomic Energy Organization that is visiting Israel before going to Iran and playing a political role rather than uh, a technical role and limiting himself to control and monitor the development of Iran in the enrichment uranium. And Iran is still giving access, although people will say, well, 27 cameras, Links yes. to the satellite have been stopped, but there are still another 40 camera working. So Iran is still in the JCPOA and America and Europe are out. Yes. L lastly, Elijah, I know we're, we have about two minutes left. Um, Kurdistan 24 is reporting that the U.S. is obviously announcing more sanctions against 
uh, Iran today. It says here the United States is designating 15 individuals and entities that are engaged in illicit sales and shipment of Iranian petroleum, petroleum products, and petrochemical products. That is a statement from Secretary of State Antony Blinken announcing that in a written statement. So it seems like the U.S. isn't getting what they want from Iran, so they're just going to, you know, issue more sanctions and, and you know, bully uh, people in Iran until they get what they want. Is this any way to handle diplomatic relations, Elijah? Well, you're absolutely right. Since 1979, the U.S. is imposing sanctions after sanctions on Iran, and the only thing they've got is a hole in the water because this is not the way you deal with Iran. And to confirm what I just said, uh, Secretary Blinken said the absence of a commitment from Iran to return to JCPOA. This is a U.S. Secretary of State that is accusing Iran for not returning when he is out. And not only the U.S. Uh, uh, ministry, but the U.S. also Treasury issue sanctions related to Iran, oil that is badly needed around the world, particularly in the U.S., in Europe, and the rest of the world. And they still allowing Iran to sell 1.4 million of barrels per day, but they're doing a bit of a charade by saying we're imposing further sanction when this is not the way to handle Iran and has been proved that is wrong by Donald Trump and all the previous presidents before uh, Joe Biden. Elijah, thank you, my man. Great Always analysis. appreciate. Yeah, that's right. Always appreciate you joining us. Elijah Magnet is a veteran war correspondent. He has covered the wars in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Lebanon, etc. His extensive um, war reporting record. You can find him on WordPress or ElijahJM.wordpress.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at EJMALRAI. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. So the big news of the morning is that Bojo is no more. Bojo has fallen. Bojo is no more. He has fallen. And so the catch becomes, what's next for the UK? Bojo gave a speech. We're trying to get that speech for you. Sometimes we usually cut into it, but at the point where we got it, it was after the fact. So it was, you know, we're trying to do it live. But we are going to try to get you that speech so we can give you the great time of Bojo um, resigning. And we're going to have a, a soundtrack behind it, laughing and clapping. And we're going to have like a good time. Yeah, it's like, boo. You know, it's like, so apparently one of the news stations in, in the UK played all of the people that resigned. It was like 54 people or something like that. And then they had Bittersweet Symphony with Bojo's picture Aww. just there. And they're like, yeah. That's pretty funny. <laughs> it is funny. It's I great. love British humor. It's so great. It's so great. This is so brutal. Just think. Just think. Well, I don't He know. was so clear on... Putin has to leave. Right. And it's like, oh, Biden's like, oh, the man, take somebody needs to get the man out of his office. Well, it seems that with Putin strutting around at a 70 something, 80 percent approval rating, Where Biden like, was at 30 percent. Yeah. Biden is at 30 some percent. Bojo is literally out. Now, 
the the thing that okay, so Elijah named rattled off a, a list of names that could potentially replace Bojo. Yeah, and Liz Truss is one of them, and uh-huh. she's there. I find her vile. Yeah. Liz Truss, I mean, she has been such a hawk. A lot a of hawk. those people are vile. Yeah. She has been such a hawk on, she's such a war hawk. Yeah. And she just, she cannot wait to engage Russia in a hot war, I guess, with the UK. And, but that's just it. Boris Johnson she's was similar, She's leaving though. the G20 right now. She's on her way back. Oh, okay. So that, she's not going to attend, like, the, the her secretarial, because, you know, they have the different yeah, departments. Yeah, two days, right. Yeah, they do it's their like department Thursday and Friday first, and ministerial and all that so stuff. So she's, yeah. she's. Going, she's not attending. She's bouncing, going yeah. back to the UK. That would be god awful if Liz Truss. But is it any worse than Borscht? I mean, think of how hawkish Borscht Johnson was. The guy when the um, Skirples came down, he was like, "Well, Porting Down told me that Putin did it." And then they go to Porting Down, Porting Down. We have no idea what he's talking about. I feel like Bojo's kind of a, a little bit dumb. He's not as dumb as he looks. I don't think he's. But I think there's a little bit of of ignorance to him do you see i took it as he knows what he's doing he knows what's true he just meaning he's one of those people who knows the difference between i'm lying about this and you know like this is propaganda this is true well i think to some degree every every world leader has some blind faculty they have some blind spots because your people may not necessarily feed you the truth all the way up the food chain And just like john was talking about yesterday where he was like all of them were true believers right so you know, to some degree, I'll give I'll give Bojo a little bit of his his ignorance card yeah. because everybody is ignorant to some things sometimes. Right. Liz Truss, on the other hand, I find her to be like a Hillary Clinton type. Like Ugh. she just yeah she just mm, yeah. I I feel like she's very very she's aware. Worse. She's very aware. She's sharp. Yeah. And she it it's she's more of a war hawk than. Than Bojo, like right. it's, it, I can't explain it. Just some of, if you read some of her comments and yeah. stuff over the past six months, mm-hmm. ooh, just uh, grotesque. Ooh, just grotesque. Look, I, I feel you on this. I just, it's one of those situations where I just don't know how the policy would change, regardless of who takes power. Like, can you really deviate from this policy after being so weird to it? I mean, maybe you could say, well, that's um, Bojo's policy. But I have a hard time believing that the conservative party is going to deviate in any particular way. And look, you may be right. She may be more hawkish than Boris Johnson. That's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, there, there could be situations where it's like, okay, this person is bad, but this other person is worse. Bojo might have, I don't know. He might have taken this like almost. She, she wants World War Three. Yeah. She's like egging on World War Three. And I didn't get that impression from Johnson. I got the impression from Johnson that he wants control or right, at the very least right. he wants to be boisterous. Not that right. he wants to actually get into a war. I think he's war. more of like a hold the line. We'll send you a few helmets. Exactly. We'll yeah. send you some helmets and I don't know, some binoculars. Yeah. And, but Liz Truss is like, no, we will go to the mat. And like, I, I just find her. Oh God! If anybody wants to push for World War III on the European continent, it's this woman, and that's terrifying. That is terrifying, Manila. That is just so—it's not a good outlook. Whoever no. the Tories have on the bench, oh, and I, I gotta be honest—I haven't covered. So we joke about the DNC bench. Yeah, the Tory bench is—is—they're very capable, but in a yucky mastermind kind of a way. And you know, it's wild. But, and I need to get to the headlines, but Johnson could have dominated this. I would even say the same thing about Trump. And people might be shocked that I'm going to say this. When you have somebody who comes in like that, they wildly have the, popular, wildly popular, they have the ability to 
dominate depending upon how if they he go about it. His hand he played well, his hand right. He just didn't. He just didn't. When Donald Trump came in, Donald Trump, he, he, he was a hand. wild card because good he hand. could go against the Republicans if he wanted to. He showed it when he was on the stage when going after Jeb Bush or he could also go after Democrats. Meaning you had this ability to kind of float in a way where you could get votes from both sides because people didn't quite know how to basically interpret you. You didn't have an, an encased point of view and framing that people ran with. I would argue that some same thing similar with Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson got in on Brexit, not about any particular policy. And so even when that stuff came up about the NHS and everything else, the conversation was on Brexit. Those people understood that the NHS was at risk and everything else. Fair enough, um, um, Jeremy Corbyn. What about Brexit? That was the talk. And so Bush Johnson had all sorts of leeway well, in that I mean, stuff. He was the the right man for the right moment. Yes, he was. Yeah. And, you know, they he, they used him and leveraged him for what they needed. And and now his time is over. And he was far stronger than Theresa May against uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn right. had a chance against Theresa May. He had no right. chance against no Boris Johnson. None. So, like I said, right man, right moment, right time. And now gone. Right purpose. And that purpose has been served. Goodbye. We're done. And now, real quickly, before you go to headlines, yeah. um, since we were talking with Elijah about how this could potentially, potentially, yeah. hopefully, reshape the war in Ukraine uh. and the European, <laughs> right. the European angle of it, right? Yeah. Because you, the Europeans like, are, are, are all of them. I don't care if it's you call it the EU as a bloc or I, I mean the Europeans as, as a yeah. people. They, the people do not want to be under the the uh, the boot of Uncle Sam. No. But the politicians do. Yes. Right? So a poll from from German broadcaster RTL, 47% of Germans back the idea of Ukraine making territorial concessions to Russia, 41% oppose poll, it, yeah. 12% of respondents were unsure. 69% of German civilians do not believe that Kiev will be able to defeat Russia. So, isn't that amazing? Think of the amount of propaganda that has gone into Europe and the United States right, to and block, you still come to this right, conclusion. And the, the German populace is still saying, dude, this, we're not going to win. Yes. They have blocked off RT, by the way. They shut it down. In, they in, shut um, in Europe, Deutsch completely. months ago. And the public is the still saying, we don't like this. We cannot win. Let's not get involved. Get out. They're going to cut our gas off. What are you guys doing? Right. The they're going to cut our gas off. What are you doing? People are stupid. No, man. they're not stupid. I like, love polls like that because it's in spite of. Meaning it's, it's not, we've given you a huge amount of propaganda over the course. We've set your context. We've yeah, set your it, framing. You this, said, this, this, shows, this shows people how the great length and efforts that the German government has gone to <laughs> to block to block information from getting to the people to curate what they know, what they see, what they read, what they hear. And yet 69% of German civilians still know what the truth yes. is. And it shows how unreflective of the people all of our governments are. They do not represent our values. Right. The vast majority of governments in this world do not represent their people. And that is sickening. It is sickening. And on this, but see, that's the interesting point though. Is it, is it a similar situation where it's in the U.S. or in Europe that because they're feeling pain that they care? Meaning if, it's, if it was a situation where they took all of these actions, 
they had put out all of this propaganda and everything else associated with the topic. But it wasn't having these fallback consequences where German industries where they're like, okay, we may have to shut down German industries or BASF looks like, okay, we're going to have to shut down because we don't get the materials that we're potentially getting. Meaning if it wasn't for the consequence that is basically befalling the various countries where they're talking about rationing, they're talking about energy, like going through their energy reserves, thousands of pounds in regards to the amount they're paying for energy. I mean, astonishing stuff. Even the energy that they're getting, they're buying from India. That's an upcharge. They're and basically India is getting it from Moscow, refining it, and then selling it back to Europe. Right. I mean, think about how ridiculous that is. So you're not using Russian oil, even though you're using Russian oil, you're paying an upcharge on the Russian oil that you're using, and you're losing the war. So the public knows that. How does the public like the public? It's like, well, you're hurting us and you're losing. What are you doing? Like, I think it's that. If the public wasn't necessarily taking a hit, would the public feel one way or the other about this? And no, I don't have an answer for it. That I don't have an answer for. Is it the pain? That is making the public care, not necessarily the compassion People of it all. People still know. Yes. People know. Let's get to the headlines. Oh, fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff. But I got to be honest, I am one of those people who, Bojo is no more. It's not even that I care who's coming behind him. Bojo is no more. He's been one of the hawkish people on this particular uh, war. I won't clap yet because we don't know who's going to replace him. It could be worse. It could be worse, but it's the feeling of humiliation and discrediting that's associated with a man failing. Failing on live on stage, I'm in front of the entire world where he explained, we need to get this guy out. And you yourself are the ones who's basically making an embarrassing speech where you have to look people in the face who are looking at you and tell them I'm leaving. Hashtag accidental self coup. <laughs> right. Right. They got him, ladies and gentlemen. They got him. Let's get to the headlines. I'll go through these relatively quickly. Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Bojo has agreed to resign as conservative leader today with a public statement expected within hours reported media. We actually have that public statement. Let's play that clip. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. It, thank you, thank you. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. So I want to say to the millions of people who voted for us in 2019, many of them voting Conservative for the first time, thank you for that incredible mandate the biggest conservative majority since 1987, the biggest share of the vote since 1979. And the reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. And of course, I'm immensely proud of the achievements of this government from getting Brexit done to settling our relations uh, with the continent for over half a century, uh, reclaiming the power for this country to make its own laws in Parliament, getting us all through the pandemic, delivering the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, the fastest exit from lockdown, and in the last few months, leading the West in standing up to Putin's aggression in Ukraine. And let me say now to the people of Ukraine that I know that we in the UK will continue to back your fight for freedom 
for as long as it takes. And at the same time, in this country, we've been pushing forward a vast program of investment in infrastructure and skills and technology, the biggest in a century, because if I have one insight into human beings, it is that genius and talent and enthusiasm and imagination are evenly distributed throughout the population. But opportunity is not. And that's why we must keep leveling up, keep unleashing the potential of every part of the United Kingdom. And if we can do that in this country, we will be the most prosperous in Europe. And in the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in midterm after quite a few months of pretty relentless sledging and when the economic scene is so difficult domestically and internationally. And I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. And of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and, and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times, not just helping families to get through it, but changing and improving the way we do things, cutting burdens on businesses and families, and yes, cutting taxes, because that is the way to generate the growth and the income we need to pay for great public services. And to that new leader, I say, whoever he or she may be, I say, I will give you as much support as I can. And to you, the British public, I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. I want to thank Carrie and our children, and all the members of my family who have had to put up with so much for so long. I want to thank the peerless British Civil Service for all the help and support that you have given our police, our emergency services, and of course, our fantastic NHS, who at critical moment helped to extend my own period in office, as well as our armed services and our agencies that are so admired around the world, and our indefatigable Conservative Party members and supporters, whose selfless campaigning makes our democracy possible. I want to thank the wonderful staff here at Chequers, uh, to here at number 10, and of course at Chequers, and our fantastic prop force detectives, the one group, by the way, uh, who never leak. Above all, I want to thank you, the British public, for the immense privilege that you have given me. And I want you to know that from now on, until the new Prime Minister is in place, your interests will be served and the government of the country will be carried on. Being Prime Minister is an education in itself. I've traveled to every part of the United Kingdom, and in addition to the beauty of our natural world, I found so many people possessed of such boundless British 
originality and so willing to tackle old problems in new ways that I know that even if things can sometimes seem dark now, our future together is golden. Thank you all very much. Thank you. That was Boris Johnson giving his farewell speech after, um, as Manila said, self-cooed himself. <laughs> um, basically one chaotic moment after the next that basically got him taken out on a rail with 50, more than 50 of his ministers, um, many of which um, in his backbench, resigning all at once. And that was his speech. Um, we, we're going to take a break and we're going to bring back Lath for a moment. But there's a few parts of that. Cutting taxes to pay for public services, basically bringing in less money to pay for more things. This is a conservative argument, always the case. Um, he says indefatigable. I love that, that term. But then he says, them's the bricks, which, yeah, them's are the bricks. And he even at the last part says, for, the la for up until we find somebody else, we are going to be doing what is in the interest of Britain. And it's like, okay, that would be new because you weren't doing what was in the interest of Britain the entire time you were in office considering the energy costs that you guys were taking on. Meaning it wasn't a situation where you took an honest assessment of what is in the best interest of the UK. And one of, in fact, one of the big issues that Boris Johnson came, ran into in local elections, whereas the Conservative Party needed Boris Johnson there to whip his people up into fervor, guess where Boris Johnson was? In Kiev. In Kiev. I wish, I wish Joe Biden would have that humility, at least, yeah. to be like, okay, I have not actually done what's been best for the American people. <laughs> Good luck with that. We don't have that kind of humility. He just gave the speech that American households are going to have to take a hit in gas prices indefinitely. I know. It's the American way, Jamaro. We don't have humility. This is America. Come on. I, I, he says no one is indispensable. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Did you know that before or that? Humility. We ain't got that here. Is that humility? Is that humility? Or is he just embarrassed? Is that the thing that you say because you basically failed miserably? Well, yeah, you have to be, you have to come, you have to come correct and humble. Yeah. He got humbled and at least he admitted it. That's fair. That's what I'm saying. That's that, fair. There's some humility there. You ain't going to get that from any American <laughs> politician. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you guys are listening to the fault lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And if you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. But we are back, and we have... A gentleman sitting here, beast <laughs> from the Middle East, the dawn of Lebanon, the bringer of rain, producer of Leif. What's going on, my man? Uh, hey, how are you guys doing today? So far, so good. Bojo is no more. Yeah, he's gone. Boris Johnson has failed miserably. Yeah, that, that, that whole cabinet capitulated. Yes. Which is unbelievable. Apparently, they had to replace the entire cabinet. Isn't that astonishing? Two days. 50-something I mean, people gone. It's, well, this is what you would call a peaceful and democratically acceptable coup. Yes. 
from himself. <laughs> I know, you can say it's, it. it's like so embarrassing. It I mean, is. To talk, you know, this guy has been talking big yes. the whole time. Like he's been put, he's been also one of like the catalysts behind like preventing the Ukrainians from negotiating with the Russians. That's right. I mean, if you remember, he went and visited with Zelensky, Zelensky and told him like, no, you, you will know. not get these security guarantees. Exactly. And now Keep he's fighting. suddenly like, oh, I'm gone now. It's like, <laughs> oh, no. yeah, it's like, no. you know, it's unbelievable. But my favorite person in that cabinet is Trust. Liz Trust. Uh-oh. 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 I do not see her becoming prime minister. You don't think so? No. She's not popular, right? I got to, it's not Gross. necessarily about the pro- popularity. She's kind of, I don't know, like. Awkward or something. Kind of like it doesn't translate sometimes. Well. Like, you know, Lavrov trolled her oh, immensely. Yeah. yeah. And right, she's a dumb hawk. Yeah. yeah like, she's so hawky that it, like she doesn't even know what she's saying. On some level, I think those things are always related to each other. Yeah, but I mean Lavrov, I mean Lavrov's like been, you know, in that position for a while. And like him just trolling her at the start of the Ukraine war, you yeah. know, or before that even, you know, bringing up certain things and like her being oblivious to them. And yeah. I'm just like, you're in the role of a, as a foreign minister. I mean, the UK, I mean, the, the great British Empire right. had once ruled, like, you know, they 51% say— 51% like, of the globe. Yeah, the sun like, never you know, falls on the yeah, British exactly. Empire. Right, and, right. like, <laughs> right. you know, the fact that you don't even know where, like, some of these areas are. And yeah. then, like, I think what was the—like, I think he described—the way he described her was, like, he was, like, you know, like, horrible talking to her. Yeah. And it was just, <laughs> like— <laughs> And, you know, I, I just don't— See it? I mean, we had David Cameron uh, right. a little while and ago. And he failed. Yeah, I mean. He had to base, he capitulated after Brexit went up in smoke. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he kind of reminded me a lot of uh, who was the French prime minister before uh, Macron. Uh, uh, I know. You, I could see his face. Sarkozy. Sarkozy, right? No, 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 Sarkozy. It was after oh. Sarkozy. Uh, after uh, shoot. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. Blanks? No, I know you're talking about. I can see his it's face, but I can't think it's of his uh, name. something like that. I'll, I'll, I'll come to me later. Yeah. But he reminded me a lot of them where, I mean, like, a lot of his policies were ineffective. Yeah. He, you know, anytime anything happened, like, economically, he would blame it on the current climate of uh, European affairs. So, I mean— Even the even the Good Friday deal. I mean, you couldn't even trust him, to be honest. I mean, like, he—you come to a negotiation, and then it was, like, magical thinking in the negotiation. And, you know, it even got to the point where Biden was like, okay, we don't want anything to take place that is going to ravel the Good Friday agreement. Well, why are you saying that? Because Bojo was basically <laughs> trying to unravel the Good Friday agreement. Well, I mean, even well, recently with the, U- with the EU, where it— d- Northern Ireland and the UK ends up having back and forth because it doesn't necessarily seem like Boris Johnson was going to attend to the deal that he came up with. I mean, the thing with Bojo, it's so odd because if you remember, he was actually the mayor of London. Yes, he was. Before he like ascended to this role. And that's when all the drama of the women that he was hooking up with in his office. Uh huh. Emerged. Oh, that's what that was coming up when he was He was mayor. hooking up in that office. But like, hey, baby, he started gaining popularity that. because a lot of his comments suddenly, like, you know, a lot of the British populace liked him. Like, yeah. he was talking about, like, in terms of conflicts, I remember, like, he, he like, got chastised for, like, you know, saying, like, I think it was, like, the, the Syrian military captured Palmyra, and he was like, it's good for humanity, and everyone was just like, you know, step down, or, like, <laughs> but, you know, it was like... It, it was, was like, resign, yeah, sir, you like, can't say that. But it was like, he made, like, moves. He even made, like, you know, attempts to, you know, not necessarily appease Erdogan in Turkey, but he also offered his hand. So, I mean... He was kind of seen as somebody who was a kind of a breath of fresh air after yeah. Brexit. And, you know, suddenly he gets in that role and you kind of see it's very similar to like when Trump had Bolton in the office right. and Pompeo. Like these two guys are war hawks and it's almost like he goes from his isolationist, you know, mentality to suddenly like this guy who becomes like a neocon. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm not necessarily sure if that's what happened with the 
the Bojo uh, administration, but it definitely seemed like he was teetering over this like very hawkish policies, and it seemed very abnormal, especially for him, who, yeah. you know, when he first, you know, kind of came into the power, he was kind of very anti, you know, going to, you know, these foreign wars and all these yeah, things. anti-globalist. Yeah. Okay. But so, once you're in office, and then, and then you feel the boot of Uncle Sam on your neck. Yeah. You flip. Yeah. And, and you know what? And, and if the, the British thought that their economy was crap now. Oh, man. Barron's is reporting that Bojo stepping down could wipe out 3% off the entire UK stock market. Wow. <laughs> just off the top. Just, just immediately just because boom. he's leaving. Wow. Just, I mean, look right there. Barron's. Wow. 3%. Like they are taking a hit for those policies, man. I mean, like it's astonishing. Like I, I was reading through the supermarket stuff, like the amount they were paying for food, the fact that they didn't have certain foods on the shelves, um, the amount they were talking about for heating. They were talking about thousands of British but, homes but not having clear, any of stuff. It's amazing. A, a lot of those shortages and issues that they're having with like their food supply or whatever stemmed from Brexit to begin with because yes. they had not Bojo had not secured any deals right. before Brexit was formalized, so they didn't they didn't secure these food trade deals and That's ag right. deals. So that's also on his oh, plate. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I mean, it seemed that he was running with magical thinking during the entirety of the Brexit. And I kept asking, like, how is the thing with Northern Ireland going to work? How are you going to have a situation where you're extricating yourself from that, whereas the Republic of Ireland is still going to be associated with Europe? Like, how, how are you going to prevent the goods from one way to He's like, we're going to have these magical devices that are going to know <laughs> when something is coming in. And, know, and it's like, okay, dude, this is obscene. And it's like you hear people from um, Northern Ireland give their speeches talking about it and everything else. He had no idea for this stuff. And so... Now he's on his way out. And I guess the question becomes, what happens to Ireland or the Republic of Ireland versus Ireland? Does it reunify at this point? I mean, especially if they can't come up with some kind of way of, let's say, minding the gap between those things. I, I have no idea what's going to happen to the UK at this point. Is Scotland going to look at for another referendum? I mean, Are they going to be like, Scottish we're trying to leave now? Movement. I mean, yeah. it'd be interesting to see what happens. I mean, um, they're getting smaller. It's almost as if the UK is being carved up by the UK. I mean, it was bound to happen. I mean, yeah. but I, I don't know necessarily if that's going to be strong enough to create this, you know, domino effect where we start yeah. seeing like Scotland, you know, and I don't know if we're going to necessarily see the Irish, you know, Northern Ireland and Ireland come together. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just up in the air at this yeah, point. At this point, it's, I think it's too early to tell. It's it's really contingent on who's going to end up becoming prime minister and their policies. I mean, can Starmer come in? I mean, yeah. You oh, know, like, he's not coming in. Oh, yeah. I know. Starmer it's is like, never going to be prime minister. <laughs> so there's never. a lot. There's a lot that goes. I will write that. For, Write that, that down. down. <laughs> Write that down. Yeah, right. Write that down. Never, under no circumstances, he's ever going to become prime minister. Yeah. He's so, yeah. I mean, I would, I would give Corbyn a better chance of becoming, at very least from the standpoint of popularity yeah. and everything else. But Starmer is so, yeah, he's he's a horrible politician. I would argue that Boris Johnson's in that office on some level. He was secured in that office because of Starmer, how bad Starmer was. But let's flip to Turkey for a moment. Sure. Um, Erdogan has been fascinating me recently, especially <laughs> with uh, this kind of kingmaker persona that he's basically been taking, whether it was a position in NATO, whether it was, I have this massive military. Oh, you guys need access to the Black Sea? Oh, oh, oh you, Finland and Sweden want to be in NATO? So it becomes that, right? And he's like, I will destroy the world as a colossus in this moment. Okay, well, the catch becomes, you and I were having this conversation about what was going on in his own country, though. Like, it's one thing for the optics and the politics where all these guys need NATO and it feels like he won 
thoroughly. And it's kind of foreign policy victory. It's another thing, though, of what is going on in the country itself. And you were making a point like, yeah, dude, he may not even win that next election. It's like, yeah, yeah this foreign policy stuff is nice. But when you're getting into the country itself, there are all sorts of problems in that country that's politi- creating political turmoil for Erdogan. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, inflation is through the roof. And right. it's, you know, it's causing an issue where I think they said something like six million first time voters have registered in Turkey. Wow. And most of them are you. I'm sorry. Most of them are young adults. And so, so the thought is those people are voting to get rid of him. And that's kind of the consensus at this moment. I mean, a lot of the youth are struggling with, you know, I, I think Reuters actually had a really good piece recently where they interviewed people. And one of the, you know, one of the people interviewed was like, I don't want to live, you know, paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. I would like to live, you know, and to enjoy my life and not have to worry about the the economy. And, and the thing is, is the war in Ukraine can't be blamed on the, you know, the Turkish economy cannot be blamed on the Ukraine war because even before then inflation was through right. the roof. And it's been, it's been a major issue with the country itself. And there's definitely a strong opposition in the country. And you have to remember before the AKP, which is the Justice and Development Party of uh, for Erdogan, um, before they took over, the country was mostly ruled by the Kemalists for a long okay. time. And I mean, that's the party associated with Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, which is the founder of the Republic of right. present day Republic of Turkey. So um, there's another push now by the Kemalists, kind of, which we call them the CHP, to kind of retake you know, parliament. And if that were to happen, it'd be a major shift in terms of, uh, at least like the political ideologies. I mean, they're secularists, whereas, whereas Erdogan himself is more of an Islamist kind of, you know, likes, it's kind of definitely pushed the country away from the secularist, uh, Mm -hmm. mentality today that they perceived. I mean, look what they had with the Hagia Sophia, where they moved it into a mosque. Uh, Greece was unhappy with it. I mean, relations with neighboring countries, uh, have deteriorated. However, I, I do think it's important to point out that even with the Kamalists, like a lot of the foreign policy that Erdogan has mm-hmm. is kind of shared by them as well. I mean, you're not going to see them. I mean, they're going to make gonna be a dramatic departure if somebody takes no, over yeah, from a foreign policy. Maybe standpoint. not as aggressive in terms of militarily. I mean, you're not going to see them. But I mean, during the uh, the Karabakh war uh, between army uh, between um, the the ethnic Karabakh. Armenians right. and the Azerbaijani army. I mean, you have to remember, I mean, the CHP, the, the Kemalists were behind it. They support it. And, yeah. you know, the, the occupation, the northern uh, occupation of northern Cyprus as well, they support it. I mean, yeah. they don't believe in withdrawing their troops. And even today with what's going on in northern Syria, they're not against these operations. You got to right. remember the PKK to them is still a major enemy. And they're, you know, the, it was actually Erdogan in 2009 who actually tried to do like a uh, provide amnesty to a lot of uh, a lot of the PKK members and provided almost a diplomatic uh uh, amnesty as well to uh-huh. a lot of the what they're called AD, HDP, which are the Kurdish politicians, which they accuse of being terrorists. PKK, yeah. yeah. So he tried that, and then later, you know, in 2015, he goes and changes his mind. But you know, so to see maybe like a major shift in foreign policy, I don't think we'll see it. I think the CHP internal yeah, politics is more. I think it's internally speaking, which is what we're going to see, and that's what a lot of people are voting for in this election. Okay. I don't think that they're focused so much on. Uh, their foreign excavates because, I mean, in, in many ways, they, they support it. Yeah. But when it comes to domestically speaking, I mean, your economy is not doing very well. The limits on social freedoms is a major issue. Um, oh, we need to get into that, too. Because, it, it, you know, when people think about Erdogan, I have a hard time conceiving him losing. 
And maybe it's because for the entirety of the time that I've been into politics, he's been in charge. <laughs> yeah, since 2002. Yeah, and it seems like he's strengthening his hand in, in um, this kind of authoritarian thing. Even And I remember even when the coup was taking place, or they were calling it a coup, again, I wasn't certain whether it was a coup or whether Erdogan was leaning into it to be like, <laughs> oh, they're trying to take me out of office. I need to get rid of all of my political well, opposition. He definitely had a purge after that. Yeah, major exactly. Purge. A major purge. I mean, he eliminated a lot of enemies, and I'm talking about what he, what we would call the Gulenists, yeah. who he was once aligned with. And um, just to be clear, that gentleman is here in the States. He is in and Pennsylvania. he wanted him extradited. He wants him extradited. Yes. He wants him bad. I, yes. mean, he, I mean, it's kind of funny because uh, what's his name is running for uh, Senate. Uh-huh. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Oz. Oz. Who's, you know, like, you know, he's a proud Turk. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know yeah, Dr. Yeah. Oz was a Turk. Okay. You didn't know he was All Turkish? All Turks are proud. Yeah. Every Turk I've ever met was you know, proud. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I don't know one Turk. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, so he it's just kind of comical because, you know, like, you know, Gulen has this massive estate uh-huh. and, you know, and uh, he's protected, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, he's a major – I mean, he perched a lot of people from the military, a lot of people from the military that were viewed as Gulenists. Yeah. So in his mind, he's created a safer environment for himself. Right. And you got to remember, too, I mean, his intelligence agency itself is very loyal to him, the MIT. Right. So, I mean, and, and, along with the Justice Department, everything. I mean, so he has managed to create a state – where it's highly supportive of him in terms of the institutions. Right. The question is, is what happens if he were no longer president? And well, what happens to democracy under the context if he is president? Yeah, I mean, it's— I mean, if it's if you're saying—because you were telling me that courts, he was throwing people in prison, <laughs> like any opposition having certain conversations and talking. And look, I know for myself, in speaking to certain Turks, there's certain things they wouldn't just talk about in general. Yeah, They're I mean, like, yeah, it's no, a completely different I'm not having that now. conversation. Yeah. I mean, you—I mean, I remember, like, you know, in the early—you know, the 90s, you know, where, like, Turkey itself had made a pretty, pretty big strides in terms of secularism. I yeah. mean, the state itself was very— uh, I wouldn't say free, but I mean, they made some big strides since 1980s, uh, especially in the early 80s when they had the, the original coup. Yeah. Um, so there was definitely major strides made. And, you know, they made peace with a lot of their neighbors. Syria and Turkey had made peace at the uh, Adana um, uh, Accords, which happened in the southern part of the country. So they made peace together. And then, you know, and then at the start, to be honest with you, the start of his tenure as president, he was a reformer. He was seen as somebody. Was yeah, he was seen as somebody that was. Uh, even though he may be politically conservative, I'm sorry, or even religiously conservative, yeah. he was seen as somebody that was going to come in and as a breath of fresh air. And then, you know, as soon as, you know, 2010s hit, he became far more conservative in his policies. He became yeah. more aggressive against his enemies. And that was the major issue for like, a lot of people internally in the country was that, you know, suddenly speaking out against your government was viewed as taboo. Right. And today it's very much so. I mean, you cannot speak out against the Turkish government. You cannot insult Erdogan himself. I mean, they arrested, I think at one there was one case where they arrested a 13-year-old boy and sentenced him to prison for insulting the, the president on— Are you serious? Yeah. Like, hey, Erdogan has a— Terrible mustache. Oh, you can't well, say the, that. Well, Miss Turkey. How dare you? In, you can't, yeah, you no, can't Ms. say that. Miss Turkey in 2016. Miss <laughs> Turkey in 2016 was she had sentenced a horrible to prison. mustache too. Oh, no, she was sentenced okay. to prison for one year for insulting really? the president. Really? For insulting him? That's yes. astonishing. Like I've heard, I've heard him do that where he tries to get people in Germany to like stop talking about X or Y well, stuff like that. It's very bizarre stuff. I mean, so I guess what that's that's. I guess the question is, what does it mean for any level of Turkish democracy or secularism if indeed he retains power? And I guess to go further to this, I always heard that Turkey had a, a stride of secularism in him, which means that from the standpoint of, let's say, like the military protecting 
a secular Turkey, like not wanting it to trend to this notion of, let's say, being a, a Muslim country or something to that effect. But no, we are a, a country of laws. Is that was that the motivation of the first coup or the military coup? Like, the, I guess what I'm getting at is, was there this fear that Erdogan will take it all? that he wouldn't necessarily acquiesce to the democratic processes in the country, in which case the military decided we need to get rid of this guy in order to maintain a secular Turkey. Well, I mean, I think— Or am I misunderstanding? Well, I think Gulen is, is an interesting—if uh, you ever, ever actually read about him, he's also kind of like—he's got this, like, Islamic uh, psychology, kind of uh, this philosophy. It's, yeah. it's, it's very interesting. He calls himself—claims calls himself, it's a peaceful movement. And, I mean, granted, I'm not— Familiar. I'm not too familiar with it, but at the, for the most part, it has gained some traction or gained some traction in Turkey. And it did have, I mean, during the coup, there was a lot of people who were loyal to it. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is that what that coup ended up doing was also targeting other political parties. I mean, I see. But the thing is, he will not ban the Kamalists because he cannot because it, that would the founding be, of the country. Well, exactly. I mean, I mean yeah. imagine like, you know, like you start banning like the political parties that founded. You <laughs> right. Know. So he's, he's not going to do that. However, he has limited their ability to deliver their messages. Um, he has arrested journalists that are loyal to the CHP. Um, he's targeted heavily. He's targeted. He's targeted heavily. The Kurds now. I mean, HDP, yeah. which is the political party. I mean, they've been targeted. Like their their politicians have recently been arrested. Their journalists, if they report anything that may be perceived as uh, anti-Turkish military operations in Iraq or Syria, they're yeah. arrested. A lot of times held without you know. And and it's so interesting to me because you know Erdogan during his, you know, in the early 2010s, you know, was criticizing countries like Egypt. He called, I remember he was, critici he was criticizing Sisi, criticized Assad. He claimed, you know, these people, these countries are not diplomat, you know, not, they don't have democracy right. and all these things. And that's fine. You know, that's great. You know, but the thing is, is that it's kind of hypocritical <laughs> right, when you're right. the one who's also doing it, but you do it under like the guise of, I'm not doing this. I'm doing this to protect my people. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, or I'm doing it to, de to defend against disinformation. Like, yeah. well, I mean, like, what? Like, who are you kidding, man? Like, uh, <laughs> right. and so he's really kind of created this state of fear yeah. where he does not want his population to move against him. And, and they have, I mean, a lot of, if you've seen a lot of these protests, these protests are massive. And they're against him. Yeah. If you go to like, if you look at Izmir, which is a, which is a coastal city on the Mediterranean, yeah. if you go to Istanbul, uh -huh. I mean, he does not have popularity. He doesn't, his, the popularity is with the Kemalists in the big cities. His, his voter base is very much the rural population, central Anatolia. I mean, Eastern Anatolia, uh, you know, towards the Black Sea. So he's, his voter base is definitely very much the rural population. He's done a good job. And on top of that too, what I will commend him on is he's one of the first Turkish presidents to actually focus on the diaspora. Hmm. He okay. has created, he has created a, um, connections to a lot of people like in Germany, for instance, I mean, you can you can find, you know, Turks who are very proud to be Turk, right. you know, and they'll come out and say that they might, you know, I think there was like even the soccer players who were just like, you know, I want to represent Turkey rather than Germany. I, and dude, I have never come across a Turk that was not insanely proud of being Turkish. Yes. Yeah, yeah, It's like course. unhinged. And that's, and that's, you know, he's kind of brought that back, which is that very proud, you know, I'm proud to be Turkish. And he's kept them in. He said he's encouraged them to vote. He's like encouraged. no nationalism. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you can see almost the, there are the far right wingers, like the 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 what they call them, the gray wolves, where you see them do like this, and it's kind of like the MD. I don't know if you watched uh, wrestling in the in the nineties. You the still loved it. The NWO loved took it. this from the uh, the gray wolves. Oh, did they? Yes, uh, Kevin Nash once said that uh, he was in they were on, you were in Europe on tour, uh-huh. and he was like he saw these guys going like this, the wolf pack, and that's yes. when he started he taking. Took, it. Yeah, he took oh, it. So state. So, they stole that from NC State. The NC State. Oh wolf come pack. on! <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it was, I thought it was so interesting. I was watching this documentary, and it was like Kevin, Kevin Nash was just like, yeah, we saw these guys yeah. doing it. I was we like, just took it from him. Yeah, and I was like, cool. Yeah. Just a little fact. I, I love know. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the question is on NATO at this point, Finland and Sweden. I mean, they are backing away. Okay, let, let me put it this way. It's not necessarily that they back away from everything. The extraditions of various people who are in the government was always going to be Fraction, you know, that's always going to be an issue. That was always going to be something to hit their head of course. on. Um, and I think Erdogan is bright enough to realize that there was going to be an issue. And so the NATO membership was always going to take a little bit longer for them to be able to do it um, yeah. because he wanted to ensure that they were going to do it first. You don't think they're going to extradite those people. No, in which Sweden case, already came out and said, we're not extraditing. We're not doing it. And on top of that, too, it, Erdogan kind of knew this from the start. Right. Like He knew that this was going to end up happening. He just wanted the optics of the win. It's a major victory for him to his population. Yeah. The fact that Europe basically NATO, not basically, NATO itself came to him and was like, please. And then they praised him as yeah. this great man. And then the people of Turkey, like, I mean, if I'm a Turk, I'd be very proud. Yeah. I mean, this guy basically made Jen Stoltenberg and all these guys come out there and praise him and all this stuff. And meanwhile, like, you know, the, you know, EU, you know, the EU countries are like criticizing him previously for right. the refugee crisis. And, you know, Erdogan's passing of, sanctions on him oh, to prevent yeah. weapon systems from going into Turkey. Well, they've gotten rid of those now. But he scored a major victory yeah. and he kind of made, you know, people like Biden himself seem very weak. And yeah. He was. I mean, you know, the one thing that I think Erdogan likes a lot is, I mean, for the most part, he did favor, at least in my my perspective, he favored Trump a lot more than Biden because Trump was yeah. more frank with him. I mean, during negotiations, for instance, for the pastor, I yeah. think in 2018, I mean, he was up front with, with Trump and Trump was up front with him and, you know, they made their deal and it was done. But with Biden, it's been very, you know, uh, difficult for him to negotiate. And Explain that. What do you mean? Well, Biden himself was kind of, you know, when he started his presidency, was very much like, I'm not, you know, Saudi Arabia. You right. know, we're going to, you know, you guys are. He calls his dad. Red. He yeah. called MBS's dad. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, you're red, you know, you're, you're red flag. Then he's like, Erdogan, you know, you're red flag too. Yeah. And, you know, all these. But think about that for a moment, though. You have a guy who's like a, a totalitarian mob boss. Just running the country. And what all of the things that go into his head. I mean, part of the reason that they murdered Khashoggi was, you know, Khashoggi was saying stuff against the crown on some level, right? And so it's like the president comes in and he does the ultimate insult as if you are not in charge. I'm going to contact. I'm going to go above your head to your dad. We're calling your dad. (laughs) And it's like, oh, man, that's such a slap in the face. I mean, the Biden administration Definitely insulted the Saudis. Yes, because during, yes, he during did. The ten, yes. During the the first, you know, the start of uh, Biden's tenure. Yeah. I mean, he's sending people over there. I remember, I think it was Jake Sullivan who went over yeah. there, and they he were like, "I don't want to see this shorts. guy." Yeah, he's like, "I don't want to see this." Poolside. Yeah, poolside. MBS yeah. was like in his shorts, flip flops, and was screaming at him. Well, I mean, like MBS is, awesome. is very powerful. He's one of the most powerful men in the Middle East. Yeah. And if you're not going to give him the time or day, if you're going to try to blacklist him, he's going to do the same he's thing to you. It. And look yeah. what he's done. You know, ultimately, uh, you can try to, you know, mend, like, Biden's going to go over there now and pretend like, you know, everything's okay. Sorry. Oh, man. You know, we're going to mend relations. But you know what? The Saudis, the uh, UAE, they're mm-hmm. all on board for Trump. 
they want a, they want the Republicans back. Yeah, and that's their view because in their mind, he won. You know, bettered their countries. You know, oh. he opened it up. I yeah. mean. The Biden administration would well, not Abraham fund. Abraham Accords. Yeah, yeah. Well, not just, it's, Trump. it's not just the Abraham Accords. You got to think about investment, for uh-huh. instance. I mean, the Saudis had to go to the Chinese. Hun- hundreds of billions of dollars that China has been dropping in. Yeah, they had to go to the Chinese but to get th- money because the U.S. would not invest. But do you, is it an issue of them wanting Trump or is it an issue of them wanting a new world order? Now, understand what I'm asking for this. Like, is this a situation where it's like the West has overplayed their hand and they've run this world for X amount of time and they have just— Stepped over a cliff, meaning they're in a situation where their economies are taking a hit. Their manufacturing is going to take a hit. They're going to have certain companies that are going down. You're going to have countries like Germany, not Germany, I'm sorry, France and India that are now getting energy cheaper, which means they're manufacturing their energy and all of that stuff is going to go up in comparison to Europe's going down. The rest of the world seem to be just standing on the sidelines as the West shoot themselves in the testicles. So when I look (laughs) at this, I think to myself, is this a situation where Saudi Arabia is like, hey, maybe that um, petrol yuan is not a bad idea. Or other countries are like, hey, maybe the West has run its course. Like, is it that? Or is it really just, we just prefer Trump? Uh, I think it's most, I mean, do you remember Trump, when he was in power, automatically shot down the JCPOA. Right. That was a major step in the right direction for the Saudis. Right, they hated it. Israel hated it. Saudis hated it. I mean, you got to remember, I mean, these are both regional powers and they're in this, you know, and they're in the region and, you know, anything to benefit Iran was viewed by the Saudis as an attempt, you know, right. to, to, to weaken their own state. And Trump himself came in there, was very powerful and he made, you know, a lot of statements and went over there. If you remember, he did the famous globe thing yeah. with, with Sisi and uh, I think it was, uh, was the, the King Salman, yeah. uh, you know, but he went over there and did that. And the Saudis viewed that as like, you know, a, a good gesture and they viewed, I mean, for the most part, they did a lot of stuff behind the scenes for Trump, you know, whether it was giving the green light to, you know, a lot of these countries to make peace with Israel. Yeah. Um, and that was viewed. I mean, the Saudis, loved, like I mean, I, I, yeah. it'd be hard to say that he, they didn't love Trump. I mean, you know, they, they gave him everything that they well, wanted. Well, I mean, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in many ways, he also, Trump was also a very big enemy of, and for the most part, his whole tenure, he was a very big enemy of Iran. Right. And while it just, you know, obviously deteriorated any sort of negotiations with the Iranians, um, it was viewed by the Saudis as a great step forward. And, you know, that's kind of why you're going to see them going forward, you know, wanting a Republican candidate. They're not going to want... You know, Biden's going to go in there and they they might give him or pretend like they're going to give him what he wants. But ultimately, they're not going to want him as president. You know, even when they deboned Khashoggi, Donald Trump and they asked him. And I remember he turns to the media and says, how much are we getting from <laughs> Saudis? And it was like some billion. He's like, was that guy American? And it like, it was like, it was just so on the nose, right? It's like, all right, I get that he deboned him, but how much are, you know, how much are we getting from the Saudis? Like, it was so on the nose in regards to this just raw, cynical appraisal of what is his value? Versus what is the value to? I will have to. I will have to say this one less. I know. I know we're running out of time. But uh, with the Khashoggi thing, I mean, you got to remember something. At the time uh, when you know before he was uh, yeah. you know, killed, I mean, there was a rift between Qatar and oh yes. and the Saudi and Saudi Arabia, and we that were over was there at the time. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the big things for for Khashoggi. Yeah, was the fact that we that these two countries were who he viewed as should be partners were suddenly falling apart, and Turkey, you got to remember, is a very close ally of Qatar. Okay. So when we when that happened, that created a major rift, and especially with the Khashoggi. That's why it's, it was pretty like important for them to meet recently because it was a major rift in in, in the Saudi uh, Turkish yeah. uh, relations. So they've been trying to mend it now, but 
long so term, much. they're always going to maintain that kind of rivalry. Yeah, they just might open up their countries now to to, to you know better trade or something. So we were abroad at, when that happened. Every country in Europe was covering it. Every country in Africa was covering it. Oh. Um, and then um, I don't remember Erdogan comes out immediately screaming his head off that they basically had the guy killed. It was like, well, how do you know? Find out there's like an audio or something. Basically, he had the embassy bugged where they basically knew what was going oh, on. I mean, he went in there and never came out. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like the woman was, it's so sad because the woman that he was trying to marry, it's like he, he got deboned for love in a weird way. Like she's out there waiting on him. His he doesn't fiance, come back, his fiance. And it's like, shit. where? Where's my, you know, I'm trying to, where's my boo? Yeah. What are you talking about? It's He's already so left. What do you mean he left? She's like, I've been I'm, sitting here. I've been sitting here the whole time. I mean, that's radically sad, like, to, 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 to contemplate that. So, yeah, that, that's fascinating, man. Leith, thank you, my man. Thank you guys for having me. Producer Leith. Anytime. Um, <laughs> a, expert on Middle Eastern policy and everything else. Middle East beast. Middle East beast. Middle East beast. Listen, the dawn of I'm Lebanon. Dawn of Lebanon. You guys are listening to the Fault Line. Thomas, Chan, we'll be taking your calls for a few minutes when we come back. The number is 202-521-1320. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. We are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. Let's go to Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? How you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Uh, first, I'd like to say free drawing signs. I have two comments. First comment is this. I saw an article two days ago. I forgot where I saw it at, but it was dealing with the S&P or Dow. Um, something happened on the stock market some days ago where it done bad since it equaled the same level of the 1870s. That's how bad it was. That's my first comment. My second comment is an abstract thought, my my opinion dealing with, you know, what these people talking about. They want the stakes to break up. And it's not going to be as easy. And, and also Julian Science. I want to talk about Julian Science AMLO. All that together. Okay. It's not easy what you think just if Texas, California secede and, and, and people start fighting each other. What's going to happen is it's going to affect Mexico and Canada and the rest of the um, Americas, right? Because you're going to have an overflow of refugees going into those countries. So for the past two weeks, I'm hearing AMLO talking about doing science constantly because you got problems going on in the United States. You got problems going on with NATO, with Ukraine and Russia. We're on the verge of um, nuclear war, basically. Why is he saying it? Why do you have more and more politicians in um, Europe and also Australia is coming out saying, it, saying, hey, we need to release Julian Hines because they see something's up. But they can't tell us, but they see something up. Anytime you have a major war happens, if you understand about it, history, people don't die by bullets. They don't die by the artillery rounds and but um, 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 shells being dropped on top of the head. They die from starvation and lack, and lack of medication, right? Oh, you mean in wars, the, the thing that kills people the most? The things that kills yeah. people the most is going to be starvation and, less, and lack of clean water, lack of medicine. You're going to have terrified fees will come back. You're going to have TB, you have all those things. So the, the, the situation with the United States, with Joe Biden, his administration, I feel to believe is going to be out the door before January 20th as well, along with um, the guy that just 
resigned this morning. Boris Johnson. You got all these things going on. When you went out, the humanity rests on one individual getting out of prison. That says a lot about the human race. Well, everybody in the planet knows. I mean, people starting to wake up and understand how important how important it is for Julian Assange to be to be released, have freedom of speech, and continue doing his job. Because the one organization that can probably give you the information to stop World War Three before we get to, you know that that point is WikiLeaks, is Julian Assange. That's why you know these people been standing up talking about support him, support him because. We might not have no more nation in the next 10 years. Half the planet might be destroyed by that time. Tarif, we're going to have to take that comment, and I want to thank you for it. Um, We have several other callers that we want to get to. But thank you, my man. Always appreciate it. And, yeah. So let's go to Sanchez from Southern California. What's going on, Sanchez? Hey, Sanchez. From the beautiful downtown 562, I offer you both a positive and gracious hand wave. Um, I want to give you a Lake Mead uh, update as to what's going on and to follow up on some of the information that I gave you on last Friday's report. First of all, Lake Mead water levels right now, on Friday I reported to you it was at 185.73 feet below full pool. Uh, as of yesterday, Wednesday, that's the ultimate report I've got right now, is 186.40 feet below full. So it dropped a foot? Yeah, yes. Within that That fast, and here's something of of really great importance that I wanted to update you on is on the 15th of June, there was a Senate committee on energy and natural resources. They held a hearing on the Western drought where Southern Nevada Water Authority General Manager Don Entzminger, he's the guy that represents like uh, Las Vegas, he testified. uh, I'm, I'm quoting here what has been a slow motion train wreck for 20 years. Is accelerating, and the moment of reckoning is near. End quote. Um, now I got to drop in here that of the river water that's in Lake Mead, eighty percent of it goes to California agriculture. That's an important point to consider here. But I want to go back to what he's saying. End quote. There's no way around this. Cities alone cannot address this crisis. I'm not suggesting that farmers stop farming, but rather that they carefully consider crop selection and make the investments needed to optimize irrigation efficiency. So most of the water diverted from the rivers used for agriculture, primarily for alfalfa and other foraging crops. But by reducing their use of the Colorado water, agriculture entities are protecting their own interests. So he's talking because he wants his water to be going to Las Vegas. So everybody has now a 60-day, as of June 15th, deadline. Uh, to come up with mitigation plans. The entire Western states have to all come together and somehow uh, get their acts together. Of course, otherwise, the federal authorities are going to be stepping in and taking uh, control of this entire thing. What sort of plans they have is uh, unknown at this point, but that's part of the mitigation procedures right now. Wow. that's I mean, that's certainly stuff you're not hearing on any news station, no. not CNN, not MSNBC, and no radio station, certainly. So, I mean, that's that's deep inside baseball Wow, from the uh, West Coast, Sanchez. Sanchez 30, 30 seconds, Sanchez. Is there anything that California is doing that makes that worse, by chance? Like, is there anything that's creating that, or is this just kind of an act of God? 
Well, no, the California is trying right now. They've imposed their own 35 percent of reductions in state usage of water. But the agriculture is going to become an issue here, especially because a lot of the water is going to the Southern California, like Imperial Valley area. So, hey, real quick here, I wanted to give you an update on the uh, bodies, the human remains. It's more and more looking like, yes, it was a mob hit. Oh. Yes. Yes. A lot of people... Yeah, a lot of people are chiming in on this. We knew it. Yep. We knew it. Old school mob hits dumped the body in the river. Wow. We got to leave it right there. My friend Sanchez out of the 562. Thank you for those updates from the West Coast, as always. Uh, You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. We'll be right back. Top of the hour. Sit tight. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Right on. Um, yeah, I love our callers. Yes, I mean, I, I love the West Coast news updates yeah. because these are things that that are vitally important to the rest of the country. Because you know, the number one, the number one export of California is no, not Kim Kardashian's booty. No, I was thinking condoms. Not that either. It is. It we really are the farmland of this country. Yeah. I mean, from the Imperial Valley where it stretches over into like the Yuma, Arizona area, all that stuff, that's where you get your crops, your cabbage, your lettuce, your, I mean, just all kinds of like like fundamental vegetables come yeah. from there. Almonds, another thing that come out of California, but which is weird because almonds are, I believe, the thirstiest of all crops. <laughs> it's thirsty. It's thirsty. You gotta, you gotta no, feed almonds. You gotta give them a lot of water. Thirsty always. That word always is funny well, to me. Because the other yeah, thirsty. Because yeah. they give it the connotation is like, oh, that just like God, she's thirsty. Or God, yes. he's thirsty. No, not that. <laughs> right? I mean, That's in the funny. literal sense that this crop it requires needs water. a lot yeah. of water to produce almonds. And then with the popularity of almond milk, yes, that has really driven up demand of almonds within California, and we don't have the water to support that demand. So which, it's like which goodbye means you have to your almond milk. Other stuff. In order to oat do, milk, yeah, maybe I don't, I don't no, know. No, what I mean is you have to. It's almost like California because of the way it deals with droughts. It's limited in regards right, to the amount of water what, that it gets. Like what? What can you really do? Right. You know what I mean. Right. And and the weird thing is, so there were a lot of um, desalination yes. projects that were happening in California, and recently Gavin Newsom killed them. Why? I, I know. Don't know. Like, I know it requires energy in order to kind right. of make that work, but still, you're California. If you need to set up a, you know, a a, a mirror forced or something like that in order to get it. There's all sorts of energy projects that that always aggravates me because it feels like of all the things that we have at our disposal that we can do in regards to human ingenuity, technolo- technical, pre- you know, precision you and everything water else. water would be like the main, the first thing, right? Like or figure energy, out how to get clean water. Figure out how to get energy and water. Like it's like you have the ability to have these large building projects. Just build a thing, whatever that thing is. <laughs> and if they need to produce energy, just do that. And you have, you can employ jobs. You can have people doing that stuff like that. And you're the state and you have the ability to do it. So it's like if you know you're California and you know you have a drought issue 
constantly. We've always had a drought issue. My whole entire life, we've always been in a drought. So It's, it's like there's nothing that you can very, do about it from a technological standpoint. What about seeding the clouds? What about that? I man, I... Now we're getting into the territory of, like, the Bill Gates, weather control, seeding clouds. Like well, all, the seeding clouds thing know, has been something that people have been doing for a while. I guess I'm thinking, is know, there anything that California a, can do to mitigate it, the drought? It droughts? becomes a slippery slope of people getting into, you know, like yeah. tinfoil hat stuff. Uh-huh. And, and, I mean, there are a lot of things that people have discussed that I've looked into, again, because I'm a Californian. Yeah, you're from so there. So I'm just curious. I'm just, I'm curious, like, what people have pitched, right. what ideas people have pitched. Like, um cloud control over the sun and how you create your own clouds and stuff. Right, I mean, right. This is this is like mad scientist realm. It's just human ingenuity. And it and depends on whether or not it's, it's stuff I've read. Consistent, yeah. And the simplest plan was desal. Yeah. Desalination. Very straightforward. Technology it's already like, exists. We already you got know all the water. To, we know how to do it. Yeah. There we have this big lot of water called the Pacific Ocean. Right. right. California has the biggest coastline of I mean, all states. Seventy percent of the water on the globe is. I mean, seventy percent of the water or the, of of the, the globe, globe is water. Is water. Yeah. So and it's definitely California the resources there. has the biggest coastline of all the states in the contiguous United States. So what was and his so, reason? I don't know. I I don't know. He yeah. came up with you know like just politician jargon. He's like, oh, this is too expensive. It's like our program. But then he goes, you know, on the other side, other side of his mouth, he comes and says, you know, how how big the California um, budget was and he was able to, to balance it and there's extra money in the coffers yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So then why aren't you funding desal projects? Right, right. Especially situations like this. Right. You clearly we're, need we're it. We're in like the worst drought of my lifetime. And like I said, drought is is like our jumping off point. Like that's, we just live in drought. Right. That's just, that's just what it is. Yeah. Right. And they are already over, they know, everybody knows that we are overtaxed as Californians in yes. every which way. Yes. Right. Like, like from our paychecks, way, from I our groceries. Just being there. From, oh, that's right. For the yeah. week you were there, from our gas taxes, we are overtaxed tax. yep. for every little thing. Then they started imposing water, like addendum fees. So if you use water from a certain time to a certain time, that it costs you more than your regular what it would normally oh, cost. Oh, they basically you. added costs on your right. usage of just so water. Of just water. So it's like I don't know. The state has done everything in its power to piss off people right. and tax them and take their money and provide very little return. Yeah. Because at the same time, our the roads suck. There's potholes everywhere. There's homeless, rampant homelessness, drugs every. I mean, California is turning into a train wreck. Gavin Newsom is over here bragging about how how great he's done with the budget and there's extra money in the coffers and that we're going to give you, like, a few of you are going to get some extra returns this year. Right. And But meanwhile, we have no water and we're overtaxed right. and there's no return. Our school system sucks all across Southern California. sucks. Like, the amount of gas sucks. No one can afford to buy a house anymore. Yeah. I mean, like, you can buy a little one-bedroom shack that's going to cost you, like, $800,000 yeah. within the Los Angeles city confines. Like, come on. Like, this—I don't know what he's bragging about, but the, the basic fundamentals to life yeah. is water. And there hasn't been—see, that's the fascinating thing about California. There doesn't seem to be any kind of reevaluation in regards to the direction that we're basically going. We're Democrats. This is what we believe in. So, yeah, taxes are great, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, but, dude, I've been there. Drugs are rampant. Like I said, first person I've ever seen do crack. California. I mean, the homelessness all over the place. And it's like, even when you... Oh, that's so quaint, Jamal. Yeah, it's so cute. cute. That was the first time you saw a crackhead. And the guy was just sitting in a um, 
um, in, the in, the, in the alley thing. Yeah. And so it's like, that is not bespeaking of success to me. Right. That is not a success story no, of a state. it is not. And yet it's a supermajority Democrat, which almost means that if the Democratic Party got their way, this is what it looks like, which is appalling. Just, you know, fix some homelessness and give people water. Yes. Give people water. Figure that's out how like to do basic, it. That's your job as basic, a government. Basic stuff. Yeah, it's your I job. Mean, that's, I mean, before you know it, we're going to find out we're, you know, another Flint water crisis. Because I'll tell you, all the, the pipes and the infrastructure in, in Los Angeles, at least, in California, uh, at least Southern California. Yeah. California is an old state, yeah. right? It's an old gold mining state, mm-hmm. right? So the infrastructure that we do have, a lot of it is very old. Yeah. So, so I'm, you're thinking of lead and stuff I'm like that that might be out. in it. Oh, I'm just waiting. Man. I'm waiting to find out that I'm, you know, a lead poison baby. Like, because I grew up, you know, in a, in a, in a mid-century home in Southern California this in the is, this is Los so, Angeles County uh, This is appalling area. to me. Like all the way through. Like the idea that your government that has a philosophical, ethical, and legal responsibility to ensure that water is clean, that people have, let's say, um, to provide for the general well-being. Right. We don't have any water, though. So Yeah. But uh, like when I think of Cal- like Chicago, for example, Chicago found out that they had lead in their water, buried the report. I mean, that's what Rahm Emanuel, where Rahm, he was like, oh, well, they did that in Flint. Let me do it here because I want to show oh, how awesome we're doing it. Man. Oh, my God, we have lead. And then so Lord Lightfoot comes in, buries the thing, same thing. Like, how do you not deal with that? And whether it's California and it's like, okay, we have a clear issue with water. We how clearly, do we supply water to our we state? we clearly do not demand better. We don't. As much as we say that we demand more out of our know, politicians, don't we don't. We do know, not. I don't know if people know how. Because it seems like the responsibility gets bifurcated among multiple people. So as opposed to saying it's your job, you're in charge, it becomes spread out. I could no, be wrong. It's, it's learned helplessness. Mm. It's absolutely learned helplessness. California's just been like, uh, well, they're just, uh, whatever. You guys like, are very oh, chill we'll in California. It. Just, no, they're not going to fix it. And yeah. Californians just aren't pissed off enough. Well, they said they don't even break it up. Right. They said it never comes up. And this is why I said, you know, it's very interesting to hear Sanchez call with these things because the news doesn't talk about it. Yeah. So the people don't know about it. And if they knew about it, they might perhaps be pissed off. And that is perhaps why the media in California doesn't talk about it. So, you know, it's this vicious, ugly cycle and California has crumbled before my very eyes because, it, you know, in the 80s, it was it was a great place to live. Yeah. We still had some water. I mean, again, we're always running. Our baseline is negative water, but right. at what level of negative water, right? So, in in the eighties, it was it was a it was a beautiful, wonderful place to grow up. Our school system was amazing. Um, Ronald Reagan went to my I wasn't in high school then, but in the eighties, Ronald Reagan went to my high school and and awarded that high school um, like one of those top whatever yeah. high school medals, like improvement or something, or, or like greatest in the top, city, or something. yeah, like yeah. some some one of these recognition things for uh, best public school in whatever the state maybe or whatever. And by the time I got there, it was it was starting to go down. Now everything everything sucks. People don't have books. I have again. I have family members who are are teachers at public schools. They don't have books. We ha- I have to help her with with donation drives, and like t- just for for money to to buy school books for kids. Got paper values to buy. Yeah. So and Gavin Newsom bragging about how he survived the the recall and how he's doing so great with the budget. Well, if there's excess money, yeah, I know there's yeah. laws where he has to send some of it back to the people yeah. um, who paid into it, but 
if there is more money, reevaluate your values yeah. and put the money where it's needed. Water, education, homelessness, fix it. None of that has been fixed, but you know. That's not their values. But he looked That's pretty. Corrupt. But he looked pretty. <laughs> uh, now let's head over to some news of the day. Someone not looking so pretty. And I'm not dissing his hair because that's some some epic hair. Uh, Prime Minister. My mom says that too. Prime that. Minister. She's like, what is wrong with his hair? Boris Johnson. That is on purpose, by the way. Oh, is it? Yes. He wants yes. to seem like there were he's some just insiders. So busy. Yeah, there were insiders that that have revealed his morning routine, and he's he's clean. He showers. He does you know that stuff. But he deliberately like that's that's Boris Johnson's that's hair. That's his. He tried like he'll pull a piece uh-huh. to. Like pull this, tweak this one that way, and this one that like, way. You know, it looks tousled, yeah. but yeah. it is deliberate. So, Prime Minister Boris Johnson agreeing to resign. He has resigned uh, as of about an hour ago, uh, with Johnson uh, continuing as Prime Minister probably until this fall. Uh, conservative leader race will likely take place this summer. The new Prime Minister uh, will come from the Tory Party after their conference in October. So he'll be sitting there for a couple of months. He's basically a lame duck. He has agreed to step down. That is official. That has been confirmed. We've heard statements now from Boris Johnson. The prime minister uh, has spoken with the 1922 committee chairman, Sir Graham Brady, acknowledging he's quitting, all that stuff. So everything's in place. He is out. He's given his remarks. Uh, Now they're just just waiting. Now the Tories are scrambling to see who's going to replace him. Uh, Here's some national news. Another person who was out at the White House. No, it is not Joe Biden. It's his White House comms director, the communication director, Kate Bedingfield, stepping down from her position in the coming weeks. That's according to Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Now, Mr. Klain says, without Kate Bedingfield's talent and tenacity, Donald Trump might still be in the White House. The rescue plan and the infrastructure law might still be unrealized goals. And Kentaji Brown-Jackson might not be sitting on the Supreme Court. She has played a huge role in everything the president has achieved from his second term as vice president through the campaign and since coming to the White House. He was talking to CNN about uh, Ms. Bedingfield there. Klain also said that despite leaving her current position, Bedingfield will remain a, quote, critical player in moving the Biden agenda forward from the White House. Now, I'm a little disturbed by that because I was a comms major in college. Um, I don't know if you're supposed to have your comms director working on the American Rescue Plan (laughs) or somehow how she got Trump out of office or I don't I don't believe that is the role of a comms director. I could be wrong. I don't believe her job should have been sitting with the National Security Council to figure things out. She was an emancipated comms director, Manila. I I don't know. I think as far as I know, as far as I know, a comms director is supposed to, you know, help you present, comb your hair a certain way, make you look a certain way, help you speak a certain way, coach you in, in how to, you know, your talking points, put together your speeches. That's what, you know, say, go, go to this TV network, not that one, go to... That's what a comms director does. Then you take calls from, you know, networks and you you schmooze with the media. Yeah. That's what a comms director does. What Ron Klain is saying that she has done, the infrastructure law. <laughs> Why does Kate Bedingfield know anything about infrastructure law? So that's a bit weird. I Yeah, that's a bit weird. So I, I don't know. Good luck to you, Kate Bedingfield. 
than members of the U.S. Democratic Party, growing frustrated with the way President Biden is responding to the challenges at hand, including record inflation and the recent SCOTUS ruling on Roe. Dozens of leading Democratic politicians believe the Biden administration lacks effective management to quickly respond to new demands and challenges it faces every day, according to this new report. None of the Biden administration's recent actions, whether it was his historic release of oil reserves from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve or the invocation of the Defense Production Act to address the baby formula shortages, have actually solved any problems. And I think that's pretty evident. Then over down in Texas, Kinney County has declared a local state of disaster officially classifying the flood of migrants streaming across the southern border as, quote, an invasion and requesting now assistance from state and federal authorities. Kinney County Judge Tully Shahan legally declared the invasion on Tuesday and five nearby counties have already enacted similar decrees or plan to do so. Shahan's declaration noted that 3.2 million illegal aliens have been caught sneaking into the U.S. since January of 2021 and some 800,000 others who avoided capture. He also claimed that more than 50 known terrorists have entered the U.S. via the Mexican border since the start of 2022 and cited the, quote, unprecedented amount of human trafficking and drug smuggling as factors that constitute an invasion. Then some international news here. Beijing has been branded the biggest long-term threat to economic security by the head of the FBI and his counterpart over in London at MI5. FBI Chief Christopher Wray, in a rare appearance with Ken McCollum, the head of MI5, warned business leaders that the Chinese government was reportedly, quote, set on stealing your technology, whatever it is that makes your industry tick and using it to undercut your business and dominate your market. In a speech at MI5's London headquarters, Ray and McCollum reaffirmed previously voiced concerns about economic espionage and hacking operations ostensibly being carried out covertly by Beijing. Mr. Ray says, we consistently see that it's the Chinese government that poses the biggest long-term threat to our economic and national security. And by our, I mean of our nations, along with our allies in Europe and elsewhere. Speaking of Europe, four more NATO members have joined Canada in officially ratifying the accession of Finland and Sweden into the military alliance. On Wednesday, leaders of Iceland Denmark, Norway, and Estonia all submitted their approvals for the two Nordic countries to join the bloc. On Tuesday, the prime ministers of Norway, Denmark, and Iceland stated they were ready to submit their ratification instruments to the government of the United States. And they say it was a signal of unanimous Nordic support for the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO and a testimony to the deep mutual bonds and close relations between Nordic countries. That was all said to Finland's state-owned YLE News. And some economics news here. Crude fell to a 12-week low of $95 per barrel on Wednesday as the combination of fears of recession, a resurgent dollar, and aggressive rate hikes by the Fed tested the metal of this year's oil rally. New York traded West Texas Intermediate WTI 
settled down 97 cents or almost 1% at $98.53. The intraday low was $95.17, a bottom not seen since April 8th. In just two sessions, U.S. crude benchmark had lost almost 15 bucks or 14%. Citigroup says WTI could collapse to $65 a barrel by the end of this year and slump to $45 by the end of 2023 if demand-crippling recession hits. Then some tech news here. Apple has announced a new feature coming this fall, not for the average Joe. It's meant to protect high-profile users, including politicians, journalists, activists, and dissidents protecting them from state-sponsored cyber attacks, they say. The new feature called Lockdown Mode will limit several features of the iPhone, but in doing so will close multiple vulnerabilities to targeted spyware attacks like those used by the Israeli NSO group that created the Pegasus software. When turned on, that mode will disable wired connections, JavaScript in the Safari browser, prevent new configuration profiles, disable Apple service requests, including FaceTime requests unless the user had previously called the initiator or scheduled the call, and block most iMessage attachments except for simple images, including link previews. Now, that last feature's removal is intended to block the Pegasus software from NSO group that uses GIFs or GIFs, if you prefer, to exploit iMessage without even the user having to click on or even look at the picture. So the fact that it gets sent, Pegasus can boom infect your iPhone. Um, All right, some funny news of the day. A pair of chihuahuas were wed in a garden ceremony held in the UK. So there's some good news, you know, for Bojo. Attended by their owners and 90 other doggy guests. According to the mirror, the dog owners played the role of mother of the bride and mother of the groom helping the newlyweds cut a dog-friendly wedding cake. The dogs exchanged especially especially written vows, rings and sausages. Maybe I hope they're rings of sausages. As the newspaper put it, it promised to always play together, to care for their puppies, to be their one or 101, to share their favorite toys, to protect their house from the evil postman, and only to sniff each other's bums from now until forever. So that's that's pretty cute. That was like the one cute thing coming out of the UK because it ain't Bojo. <laughs> right. All right, that's going to do it for your headlines this Thursday, July the 7th. You are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around to Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share the audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And we have a great guest for today. Now, I have seen her 
let's say, from this perspective of the left, because that's kind of the area to which I float in. Um, but the audience basically asked her to come on or asked us to reach out to her, our producer, um, doing God's work, was able to get her to come on. So we have Sabrina Savaltiti. She's an activist, educator, writer, and host of Savvy Sab's podcast, a co-host of Revolutionary Blackout Network. Sabs or Savvy. Let's go with Savvy. Which, what, let me ask you, which one do you prefer to be called by, um, by the way? It's really funny. Um, I actually prefer to be called Sabrina. Oh, oh. fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. And I believe it's Salvati, right? Salvati. Is Salvati. That it? Yes, Salvati. Okay. So, Sabs, what's um, going on? No, I'm, te- I'm <laughs> totally teasing. I'm totally teasing. So, um, yeah, I've, only, I've always known you as Savvy Sabs, and it's kind of just um, like at a distance, I guess, even though it's like in the same sandbox in some kind of weird way at a distance. So, it's nice meeting you. So, Sabrina, thank you for joining us. You doing okay this morning? I am. Thank you so much for having me on. No, we're glad to have you. So, I want to start here. Well, and I guess there's several places we can start. Boris Johnson losing and failing miserably, but that's more of an international politics. You can definitely make a comment if you would like to. But I'm going to go to the domestic for a moment. U.S. Senate Democrats have reached a tentative agreement to negotiate the cost of prescription drugs in the Medicare program. This is the first step in passing a long-stalled package, pretty much passing anything. Now, um, Joe Manchin was pretty much against the Build Back Better plan. It became more obvious the further along they went with it, with certain um, things that greatly annoyed him that the Biden administration did, to which he basically took it out on that particular plan. But he said he was basically on board for this. So they've separated this from any notion of Build Back Better and everything else with the idea of trying to get something passed through budget reconciliation, in which case they're trying to get this passed. What's your take on this? Too little, too late? Great job, Joe Biden, or is it something in between? Like, in general, how have you, let's say, viewed this administration? How do you view this in the context of what you've seen over the course of the last two years with this administration? I feel like it's too little too late. Um, I would like to see us have Medicare for all. You and I both. You and I both. And by the way, even if it's not Medicare for all, even a public option, which is something that Joe Biden has said he was going to pass, even that. Right. Like, I, I just want I want everyone to have health care in this country. Um, I do know that prescription costs are they, they can be extremely high depending on what medication you receive. But I think that this is just a Band-Aid on the wound. I don't think that they're looking at the overall issue, which is the health care problem that we have in this country, which is big pharma is a big problem. Uh, but. I want people to understand that people like Joe Manchin and Joe Biden, they are heavily funded by big pharma. So they're never going to go 100 percent at this. That like Their goal is not to give us Medicare for all. Um, and, and that's really unfortunate. But I think that it's up for us to do the work on the outside to raise more noise in the streets. So last year, I know we had marches for Medicare for All in over 50 cities across this country. I would really like to see that on a larger scale. I would like to see us have hundreds of thousands of people out in the street. Um, I understand that. And that means accountability. But accountability by definition means if they are not living up to a certain standard, then you are allowing them to fail. And not just fail punitively, making them fail. Do you think that many people who are out there on the street were willing to do that? Meaning if the, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell made this point of saying, and Bill Clinton, they used to say, you have nowhere else to go. You have nowhere else to go. And you created a situation where the left became the equivalent of the politically abused um, equivalent of basically a battered wife. And, and so 
all over and over again, the left would have all of these things that it wants. And yet it was never willing to basically be punitive and make the individual fail. And not just that. They would even say, like the Roe v. Wade stuff. What did they say? You should have voted for Hillary Clinton. You should have voted for Hillary Clinton. And many lefties would say, oh, you're right. Missing the point that that's not the way that's supposed to work, where they are basically holding something over your head in order to compel your vote as opposed to them doing, you know, them getting your vote because they're doing something that you basically that represents your interests. What is your take on that? Are you one of those people like me who's believed it should be punitive? Well, what I usually tell people is that I think we need to stop looking at this as a left right issue and look at it as a class issue. I see Medicare for all as a class issue. People who are wealthy don't need Medicare for all. People who are working class and poor and middle class probably would like to have Medicare for all. Um, same thing with Roe v. Wade. I'm sorry, but, but who's going to be affected by that? Women who are poor, women who are working class, and women who are, are black, women who are Latino. So I think that's the problem. We keep looking at it as a left-right issue instead of a class issue. And I really wish more people would frame it that way because then it could get across to more people. I always use the example of the civil rights movement because that didn't happen through electoral politics. That happened from the movement from the outside, from the people. And I would like to see us get something like that going again in this country. Now, it won't be easy. It may take time. But I feel like we have more technology now than they did back then. We, we have social media. We have the Internet. They didn't have any of that. And they were able to get thousands and thousands of people out in the streets. And, you know, a lot of people make this reference to FDR's New Deal. I want to remind everyone that the people put that pressure on FDR. It wasn't like he just woke up one day and said, hey, I want to give people benefits and Social Security. That's not how it happened. So I think Americans have become a little bit too comfortable. And I think that it was the pandemic that kind of really is waking people up like, wait a minute, we don't really have as much rights as we thought that we did in this country. I think George Floyd's incident woke people up, but I would have also liked to see more people out in the streets the way that they were for George Floyd, the same way for someone like Amir Locke. So you, you have to look at, again, I felt like people still looked at that as a left-right issue when you see police brutality, that should have never been a left-right issue. And people looked at it that way because Trump was in office at that time. The moment Joe Biden won, most of those protesters in D.C. went home. And that, to me, like, sent a message that told me they don't get it. They really don't understand. Like, listen, this, is, this issue is not over. This issue hasn't ended because Joe Biden became president. And people see that. We still have issues with police brutality, but I would like to get people mobile again and to get back out in the street. You used a key word that I used earlier because I'm a native Californian where I said people are comfortable yeah. in California. And it's like the slow boiling of the frog in California, right? Like you slowly keep raising these taxes. You slowly, you keep things in a crap condition for long enough. People just get used to living in the crap. And in California, I mean, it's been an ardent blue state, save for, you know, Ronald Reagan. But apart from that, that was the one blip in history. It is a hard, hard blue state all the way. And yet we keep electing the same people over and over, the same parties over and over, that continue these policies that continually put California in a worse and worse and worse and worse off 
place. What do you, when you look at California, Sabrina, what do you make of it? Because I know, I know, I mean, at least in my circles, everybody was a Bernie supporter. But at the end of the day, Hillary walked away with, you know, the, the, the electoral votes, you know, to move forward, to advance in the primaries. So what happened? Are Californians really that complacent or that, you know, just head in the clouds, busy looking at celebrity Instagrams? I think so. Um, it's interesting. I actually, I talked to Kim Iverson about this last year, and I was asking her the same question. I was like, what happened to all those Bernie voters in California in 2020? Why did everybody just, you know, turn over and say, hey, we're going to vote for Joe Biden? Same thing, 2016. Hey, we're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And Kim explained this to me in a way about the culture, I guess, especially particularly in Southern California. Um, she said that even when Gavin Newsom had his recall, she said there were several third-party candidates. It wasn't just Gavin Newsom and Larry. Um, she said, again, it's like, it seems like these celebrity endorsements really mean a lot in, in Southern California or in California in general. Um, I talked to Jimmy Dore recently and I asked him the same question. Why are so many people in California uh, approving the billionaire that's running for mayor instead of the, the woman who's with the working class people? Now, we can argue you know, things about her, too, but... Why is everyone for the billionaire? And he was, he's like, well, you know, Snoop endorsed him. Kim Kardashian endorsed him. Snoop endorsed Rick Caruso? Yes. Uh, Weird. How people end up voting against their own interests. And it's unfortunate. Look, I agree with you. It is an issue of class all the way through. Um, Whether it's. And most of these issues are issues of class. The thing is, though, that it gets exposed in a political system or political situation, in which case, like, for example, the police thing. Well, if you are, let's say, white, well, you may not care um, that much because you don't, don't necessarily believe that's going to adversely affect you. And not just that. I mean, at that point, that's, that's going beyond class, I guess, a little bit on some level, right? And maybe I'll put it this way. I agree with you. I guess the question becomes, how does that stuff get expressed and how do you get people I guess, not comfortable or at the very least make them clear about their situation where, they do, where they're willing to come out. The case that you're mentioning about Democrats and how Snoop Dogg pushes for somebody and the person is now willing to vote against their own self-interest, that seems to just happen as a basis of our political system, especially within the Democratic Party. And I get that we don't necessarily like to break those things up, but I got to be honest, I am more antagonistic against the Democrats because I think out of both political parties, they're the one that basically claim we believe these things. Meaning when Sanders was running, the stuff that he was talking about was stuff that the party for decades said that they believed. And then when he's running, they take all powers at their disposal to basically destroy him because he's actually a true believer on those things. So it's like, how does, how do you get people into a mindset where it's like, yeah, this is an issue of class and everything else by the same token, how does that get expressed in a political sense? Meaning it's one thing to say, yeah, it's class for healthcare. It's another thing to get it passed. I hope that makes sense. Correct. Um, for me, you know, I do. I usually do about three to four news stories uh, each night, but I always bring it back to class. And I, I think that's the connector for me. Now, when people come to me and they ask me, well, we do have to pass legislation, you know, I always remind them, yes, we do, but how's that going? How's that going? Every president that we've had in office, uh, at least in my lifetime, said they were going to try to fix the health care issue. 
that that hasn't happened. Uh, we know Big Pharma is a big reason because of this, because of their donors. Um, so I, I I look at something like, and I know some people didn't agree with this, but I look at something like force the vote, and I felt like that was people putting pressure on the politicians it was. on the outside saying, listen, during a pandemic, this is the perfect time for you to push them to bring Medicare for all to the floor for a vote. And I know some people feel like, well, that wasn't going to pass. And I think that's where people may misunderstand strategy, because the idea was to show you who people are. Just like same thing with uh, minimum $15 minimum wage. We got to see who voted against that. And I think that's, that's important. But again, you know, a friend of mine talked to AOC recently. And she said, like, she went to the eviction moratorium protest, and she was able to actually talk to her because she she didn't have a camera. And my other friends that were um, commentators or journalists for independent media, unfortunately, they weren't able to do that because the squad did not want to talk to anyone that had a camera. She told me that AOC explained to her, you guys are going to have to organize on the outside because they're not going to do anything for you in here. Exactly. And I think that was a big, you know, wake up call to me. That that kind of shook me up. Really? That shook you up? I mean, AOC has kind of made those allegations before. Like, I remember when the Biden administration, um, I think they were trying to get her for something. She said something about we can push Biden on $15 an hour minimum wage. And then immediately after, there was this despondent conversation with her where it became clear that behind the scenes, none of that stuff was happening. None of it. But why does she talk as if she has no power, as if she has no voice? Exactly. Like she talks as if she's a third party to Congress. She is in Congress. Why is she telling your friend, you know, they are not going to do anything for you in here? They, they, you are part of they, girl. And, like you can do something. And more importantly, the force the vote thing was a great idea because it basically, whether it won or not, is secondary. They had enough members of the squad to crash anything. Like, meaning it was kind of like mansion. They had power. They had power. But then they yielded to Nancy Pelosi. Yes. 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 And every opportunity that they've had where they could have used their vote for some type of leverage, they chose not to do it. Exactly. That's on purpose. So I think that, you know, there's, there's a little bit more that I know about AOC than, than some other people. Uh, she went to Boston University. I used to work at Boston University. So there were things I knew about her, about her story that wasn't 100% true. Explain the whole story about her being a bartender and all the kinds of, you know, she also owned a startup and I found it interesting that that part wasn't included in her bio. I'm like, no, she's not this working class girl that grew up in the Bronx. She grew up in the suburbs and architect dad. Yeah. BU picks out certain zip codes. I know that because I worked in admissions. So it just, it, 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 it was there was something about that to me that just said, I don't think she is who she says she is. And the longer I've seen this, I think she does want to be a career politician. I think she's looking out for her best interests at this at this point. And I think even earlier last year, I still expected the squad to at least try to try to fight yeah. for us. But then I kept paying attention to the way that they were voting along with legislation. And I realized they're not. They're really not going to do anything for us. Uh, Why do you think that's the case? I mean, because assuming for the moment that these guys are lefties and that their political ideology, you know, we care about health care, Green New Deal, all that stuff. Let's assume for the moment that those are things that they care about. What breaks their will? 
Because honestly, when Manchin comes out, I've always said Manchin is a role model. He's somebody that people should, you know, watch for politics 101 because his use of leverage is sublime. And he has zero issue with it. So Manchin will come out. The president will say, I'm for $15 an hour. I want that in the budget reconciliation. And Manchin will come out and say, yeah, no. Despite the fact that the House wants it, the American public basically wants it, the Democratic Party basically wants it, but Manchin has no issue exerting pressure in that way. When the roles are reversed, it wasn't a situation where the squad comes out and says, Manchin is taking food out of babies' mouths by not, you know, he doesn't care about American workers, meaning they didn't take this to a hyperbolic position to make it very clear and put pressure on the president of the U.S. to, A, stand by the $15 an hour thing. He basically said it was, um, what, it was starvation wage and everything else, meaning the president has basically given accolade. He vocally said this is what he wants. The House of Representatives vocally says this is what they want. The American public, or the very least from the standpoint of Democrats, this is what they want. And yet they didn't have the ability, the gumption, even an ounce of what Manchin was willing to do in order to stand and fight for that very specific issue. And it across the board was that way. What is going on in the House of Representatives in regards to these guys that compels their behavior like this or that breaks them um, in the way or prevents them from actually using leverage to the best interest of the things that they say they care about? Well, I actually interviewed uh, Cynthia McKinney a couple of times, and this is one of the things that I brought up to her the first time. And uh, she's former congresswoman. Oh, yeah. I've spoken to her. Spoken to her. Yeah, she explained. I asked her that same question. Why are they not like, why are they not fighting for us? And Cynthia McKinney explained to me that anyone who is willing to fight and push back will no longer be in Congress. And she gave a couple examples, uh, Dennis Kucinich, uh, Ralph Nader. She said those people who do try to heavily push back against the Democratic Party, those people are pushed out. And she, you know, I look back to what she said last year, and now we have the example this year of Dina Turner's uh, campaign, right? Where the squad chose not to support right. the Turner. Well, AOC did at the at literally the 11th hour. Yeah. Right. That that was also performative because she she explained to me like how they how it works, like Nancy Pelosi and the Democrat leadership, they'll let them do just enough to so that they appear credible, somewhat credible. They'll let them do just enough, but they'll never let them go all the way. If they do, then they will threaten to primary challenge them. And in fact, that's actually what's happening with Rashida Tlaib right now. Uh, Bakari Sellers has put out this pack uh, against Rashida Tlaib to get her out of Congress. Uh, next up is going to be Cori Bush. I think she may be in trouble this year. They're going to try to push her out. And I've talked to friends of mine in D.C. in reference to Cori Bush. Her office is not allowed to talk to people. Like, this is what they're going to do. Like, they are going to put that pressure on them and threaten them. They're going to primary challenge them. They'll remove them from committee assignments. Now, if you said you wanted to be uh, a one-term politician, that shouldn't be an issue to you, right? Well, I mean, it, it goes beyond that, not even the one-term politician. Look, I don't believe that people want to be one-term politicians. I think they get into their office, they want to try to do something, and they may justify it to themselves by saying, well, if I need to make deals here or there, ultimately, it'll be for the best in the long term. Meaning people reconcile that stuff in regards to getting in office. But 
this is, to me, it, it doesn't entirely make sense. I mean, the DCCC, and for that matter, the DSCC, had spent time going after lefties. And they even went so far as to say that if you help these lefties who are going to potentially primary dinosaurs who've been there forever, then we will basically blacklist you from the Democratic Party. So basically their objective was we want to prevent people like Cory Bush, people like AOC, people like Nina Turner from ever even getting in office in the first place. And if you help them, we're going to make it hurt for you and your companies. Like those are direct attacks on that group for them to basically acquiesce when they get into office, even if they need to have a one term because they basically, you know, run into the rims. So what? The Democratic Party was trying to get rid of them anyway. That's why this doesn't entirely make sense to me, this level of caution and, and um, kowtowing to the party in that way. But I could be wrong. Yes. And I, I think that D.C. can be a pretty intimidating place. I think, you know, people have good intentions when they go there and then they get there and they see all these shiny bells and whistles and they realize, hey, I could be a part of this team and they they're making more money now. <laughs> like, so it's 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 ridiculous. I don't, you know, make excuses for them for doing it because they ran on these issues. They weren't supposed to go there to get along. They were supposed to go there and push back against the Democratic Party. The problem is the Democratic Party is controlled by Wall Street. And so this is the issue I think I have with the strategy of putting progressives through the Democratic Party, as long as corporate money controls the party, we're always going to have this issue. So I recommend one thing, I think, for people who do want to do the strategy, I think the one thing we need to focus on is getting corporate money out of politics, because that's the root of where a lot of this is coming from. Uh, it's unfortunate. It, it's really disappointing. I honestly think those squad members would have been better off if they served local office. I think they would have been more effective if they served in their own communities, especially someone like Cori Bush. Uh, but putting them through Congress, especially people that had no political experience, with the exception of Ayanna Presley, she was my city counselor. But putting them in that position, I just I don't think they were ready for that. I don't think they had any type of mentor per se uh, to prepare them for what it's like to go into that situation. So the person that they're listening to is Nancy Pelosi. And I knew it immediately when AOC started calling her mama bear. I said, they're gone. You know, they won't even go to independent media anymore. I, I, man, I, I think I agree and disagree with that on some level. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a guy who we were having talk, talking about Obama. And he says, I don't know if the American, if black Americans were ready for a black president. And him and I sat out there and talked for like an hour over that because his point was this ability to criticize and so forth. Ultimately, we got into this headspace that because of the attacks that Republicans were basically level against them and the way that those attacks felt, that it became difficult to ever criticize Obama for stuff that he should have been criticized on because oh, the other stuff was just nonsense. He, he's also a creature of the DNC, yes, just like all of these yes, people. I mean, he skyrocketed to stardom and fame and literally as a, a sitting uh, congressman, a one, first senator. first term, yeah. excuse me, senator, first term senator sitting, I mean, had really not accomplished anything and instantly got catapulted to to presidential candidate. Like, yeah. where did that happen from? I mean, and and to, to Sabrina's point earlier about getting this money out of politics, I mean, Citizens United completely 
put politics on its head. I mean, there are people that would argue that the Clintons brought in, you know, this change in the Democratic Party yeah. when they rolled into town in the 90s and kind of changed the Democrat well, Party. Yeah. They started getting more money to than begin Republicans, with. yeah. But then you, it, it was solidified under Citizens United. That's right. I mean, one of the things I show people on my show is I show them donor information because I want people to understand why they vote the way that they do. The Republicans and the Democrats, a lot of times they have the same donors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they spread the money around. That's right. Exactly. Mark Zuckerberg likes both parties. That's Let's right. not pretend here. When I pick up the phone, I want them to pick up. I don't care which party. Right. Exactly. So it's just I really wish, you know, Bernie Sanders and Occupy Wall Street, they had the right idea with telling us to focus on that top 1%, right? Yeah. That's really who's, who's in charge of everything. Uh, unfortunately, I look back on it, and I was a huge Bernie supporter. Looking back on it, I think what would have really been helpful after Bernie Sanders lost, if he would have continued, continued to grow his movement, start a third-party kind of movement, you know, he has the name recognition and the notoriety to get something like that going. Um, and I think, you know, I was a little naive thinking that, oh, well, I really wish Bernie Sanders would have done something like that to keep that momentum up, to organize on the outside. And it was Chris Hedges, I think, that <laughs> really woke me up how things really work. And Chris Hedges explained the moment that Bernie Sanders didn't walk away from the DNC after he lost in 2016, he knew it was over. Because you, you're running through a party and you're saying that we can't take corporate money and I'm running this grassroots campaign and the, these parties, the system is corrupt and the top 1% is corrupt, but you're running into that party. Well, from his standpoint, oh, oh please finish. I'm sorry. So the DNC, they were never going to let Bernie Sanders win. But this is, see, for me, man, and my feelings either for Sanders or the squad are the same, where it's this thing of like, it's not about let. This is a political contest. The, the point is power. It's like, yes, you would want them to be fair and honest and everything else, but that's not really what you're going to get because at the end of the day, what, it matters more um, in regards to the real situation, meaning it matters more of being able to control, being able to have power within the context of the party. And if you're going to, okay, we're just going to play it straight and Sanders wins, that is an utter disaster from the standpoint of the Democratic Party going forward for generations. So they're not, it's not going to be an issue of let. Meaning when, when they are having this conversation about the $15 an hour minimum wage and they have enough votes to kill that bill, they should have killed that bill. The same thing with Sanders. When Sanders had all of those people, tens of millions of people with him, and either when he was cheated or at the point where he felt like he was getting out of the race, he should have took those votes with him and basically yes. made it say, look, if you want these voters, then you're going to have to give me X and Y in order to get them. Otherwise, you're not going to get those voters. Meaning I am willing to let you fail monstrously on live stage and be willing to accept the consequences right, of it. But he fell in line. He was at never going to do that. At the end of the day, he yeah. fell in line. He didn't have it in him. Like the rest of them. Now, Sabrina earlier was talking about, you know, how FDR didn't wake up one day and decide to do these great federal programs for everybody. And ain't that the truth? But that's yeah. because back then, back then, the people's movement was an organic people's movement and people that were affected by certain areas and, you know, of whatever they were protesting. Right. Yeah, socialist, communist, they, all those people. Right. Yeah. They were passionate about their own thing. Those are people that are within those communities. The problem now with Occupy Wall Street, and I've admitted this on the show. Um, Back in 2011, 
I believe, 20, yeah, 2011. I, I was working for Morgan Stanley Smith Barney during the big corporate merge, and I was there for the Facebook um, IPO. And there were still people protesting outside of our 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 buildings in downtown LA yeah. and our tower, I should say. Um, but when when you look at the survey of the the types of people that were were actually protesting at Occupy. They were not members of the struggling working class. More than 75% of the people protesting were white, college-educated people that made over $70,000 a year at that time. So when when you don't have an organic, like uh, the culmination of people that are, are affected or disaffected um, by those particular topics that are doing the protesting, just like today we're seeing, you know, how BLM, you see the BLM protest and, and a lot of these people white. are white, <laughs> right, upper right. class, you know, like suburban moms, yeah. right? And then you see a lot of people complaining um, that are part of the organic movement of this, complaining that this, this movement has been hijacked by the, the white elites. It's the same thing. When you look back 10, 12 years ago to Occupy Wall Street, it was the same type of thing. The Occupy people were mostly white, college-educated, and like some very high uh, number of them were also graduate degrees and the people making over $70,000. So back then, that's a lot of money. So if you do, you look at the surveys of the people that were there, that's who was there. It's not the organic, the people that were were being hurt by this, you know, the actions of Wall Street. What do you what do you say to that, Sabrina? The people like, do we need to see a Cesar Chavez type return of people marching, of people caring, and and putting it to the face of the politicians like FDR faced? Yes, that's one of my complaints. I think about those those movements. These movements need to be led by working class people. They need to be led by working class people, poor people. And I noticed that, too. A lot of them are led by college, educated, you know, upper middle class. You really need the people leading the movement who are dealing with the struggle. For example, that would have been like the civil rights movement being led, being like 99 percent white. (laughs) Not the same impact. (laughs) You, You really need it to be led by the people who are going through the struggle. And I think. One thing that we could look at is socialist alternatives. Uh, Shama Sawan is awesome. comes out of this organization. Yeah, and that's the difference with that group. They were able to build an organization on the outside, still fighting for the people. They led the fight for 15 in Seattle, uh, still fighting for the people. And then the candidate comes from the movement, and the candidate doesn't select their self. The organization decides, who would be the best person to run? Shama Salant will tell you she didn't want to run. She was selected by the group. So it's a Marxist organization. They look at who is going to be best to do it. And I think had we done something like that with the squad, for example, they should have came out of like a movement, not a political movement, but a, a, a social organizing movement that was already helping the people on the ground. So I think you know, with Revolutionary Blackout Network, one of the things that we reference a lot is look at what the Black Panthers were doing. They were helping people in the community. I think that we need to get back to mutual aid. I think we need to get back to, you know, building communities within our own communities. I, I don't see enough of that. A lot of the people I talk to don't even know who their next door neighbors are. So I think we need to get back to that. Some of the things that we are waiting on the government to do, we can do ourselves. You know, you look at the Black Panthers, they were building clinics. They weren't relying on the the government to come and help because they knew the government was not going to help them. I think 
we sell ourselves short sometimes. There's so much potential that we have, and there's so much more that we can do. A lot of people, we just put everyone's minds together. There's a lot of intelligent people. I can tell you, especially in independent media, there's a lot of intelligent people. People have so many ideas. But I feel like we sell ourselves short because we just stop. We stop at the political space and don't move further from there. But I think there's a lot more that we can get done. So I know, for example, I have been putting pressure on local politicians. Um, Our mayor, Michelle Wu in Boston, she's talking, she talks a good game. You know, uh, white supremacists just marched through downtown Boston. She condemned that. But at the same time, someone who claims to be, she was the progressive candidate. She is letting white developers push black people out of their residence. So these kind of things we need to call out. I think when it comes to politics, we need to focus more on the local level. These are people that we actually can have some type of access to. I can see Michelle, um, Mayor Wu. I can go to her office and protest right outside her office. I can't do that with the squad. They have become untouchable now. Um, I think we still should obviously hold them accountable. But I think the big sign for me is when they decided to not go on to independent media And it was those networks that really put their name on the map. So I think we need to focus more on community level and local level and what we can do to help our communities. Sabrina, before we close, just one last question. And I'm just going to read this part. President Biden had planned to nominate a conservative opponent of abortion rights to lifetime federal judgeship in Kentucky, according to newly released emails prompting criticism of the White House from fellow Democrats. Now, this is basically before the Roe v. Wade ruling came out, where he was basically the guy who's supposed to be fighting for um, a woman's choice, willing to put a judge on the bench that was against women's choice. Right. I knew about that one. Um, I want to remind people, I don't remember Joe Biden really being for uh, abortion. Right. He's Catholic. I remember, yeah, like his his history. Um, so that one didn't surprise me. What does surprise me, though, is um, I think the number of people who usually just only watch like CNN and MSNBC and they're like, Oh my God, some of these Democrats are actually supporting people who are against abortion. So I think that uh, more people are starting to, to wake up to it. Yeah. Um, but again, it goes to show you they're helping each other. Republicans help Democrats, Democrats in DC are helping each other. Who are they not helping? The American people. That's right. <laughs> we are the ones that are on the outs for this. Absolutely. Um, Sabrina, Thank you for this. I really appreciate you able to join us. Sabrina Salvati. You got it. Excellent. Nailed it. I, I'm horrible with names. I'm, I'm the name guru Yeah, she's the name the guru show. on this. I always look at her when I'm saying bad. I was like, Savati? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Sabrina Savati, an um, activist, educator, writer, and host of Savvy Sab's podcast and co-host of Revolutionary Blackout Network. Guys, we have come to the end of the show. Great conversation with Savvy. I yeah, enjoyed nice that conversation. Yeah, because some of that stuff her and I are going to really agree on. The force the vote stuff hit man. That took a break in the left like nobody's business where it became just a big fight in, uh, on the left. But I want to thank our producer, our engineer. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. I want to thank all of the people who are watching in Rumble and on the radio. Yeah. You guys had a w- phenomenally awesome day. I will see you guys in a week. Yes, he's I won't going. be back until next Friday. Yes. I've unfortunately got a death in the family, got to head to California. So I will see you all in a week. Well, you guys will be with me, and I will be running it. But and anyway. maybe a guest. Maybe guest host? Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe. I, I tend to run it on my own, but we'll see. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas Chan. You guys have a phenomenal day. Bye. See you in the morning. 
outlines. 